Hey everyone, Ben here. Usually we like to keep our episodes PG-13 in language. However, when you're talking about punk rock music with the lead singer of a punk rock band, well, there might be some salty language and copious amounts of F-bombs. You know that we usually like to edit out any F-bombs with a car clown horn sound effect, but I think you all would have been very annoyed with the amount of car clown horns that would have been scattered throughout this episode. So we present our first completely uncensored episode with a very energetic and very wise Eric Davidson of the New Bomb Turks talking about the Dead Boys' second record. Hope you enjoy. Cue up the music. episode of records revisit a podcast dedicated to the magic of music i'm your dj your mc the host on the east coast i'm ben montgomery joining me is the man who's young loud and snotty here's the sonic reducer himself and my co-host from the left coast here's wayne fugate ah hola ben hameen i don't know about the young part but i got the rest of it you got the loud and snotty part down Absolutely. So for this episode, we have a special guest. He's the lead singer of the punk band New Bomb Turks. He's also an accomplished author. He wrote the book, We Never Learned, The Gunk Punk Undergut, 1988 to 2001. Also written a ton of articles for other periodicals about what else? Punk rock music. Welcome to the podcast, Eric Davidson. Hey, hey, thanks for having me, Ben and Wayne. Thank you. Absolutely. So the premise of our podcast is fairly simple. We talk about music, but as we do at the beginning of each of our podcast episodes, I ask the all-important question, what t-shirt are you wearing? Wayne, get us started. I am wearing uh, a new acquisition. It is my Morrissey Day of the Dead shirt. It's got Morrissey's profile uh, with a sugar skull face paint. Fantastic. And how about you, Eric? What t-shirt are you wearing? Well, that's a really weird coincidence because I was just commenting with a friend of mine uh, today on Facebook about Morrissey, but that's a whole other topic for another day. <laughs> but, um, but uh, you know, cause he, he was basically saying like he's had a slow burn loss of rep or whatever. And, and I said, well, I put on the first Smith's record the other day and he, it really hasn't changed the sound of his voice at all. But anyway, um, I am, I did not pick this. I swear this is going to sound like I did, but I'm wearing an Academy Records t-shirt. It's a favorite store in Brooklyn. And it was a, it's a great yellow t-shirt with a kind of logo and a woman's face on the front. I love it because the whole print is a little off-centered, not unlike the music they sell at Academy Records in Brooklyn. But anyway, it's not an ad for them, but that's what I'm wearing. Yeah. I was just going to say, is that like an employee t-shirt and you're giving a little plug? <laughs> yeah, exactly. They better give me a better trade in the next time I go in there. No, um, no, uh, no. It, it, I think they were selling them and I was lucky to get the last one, which is probably why the print was a little off in the middle, but uh, it's a good shirt. I wear it somewhat often and I swear I didn't plan it for today. It just happened. Very good. Very cool. All right. So I grabbed the first black T-shirt in my closet, and I think I just wore the shirt a few weeks ago. So, uh, Wayne, I'm wearing my uh, local artist, Jordan Foley, in the wheelhouse. I'm wearing his T-shirt again. I Jesus. 
I promise that I washed it. Well, I got you a new shirt. Next I time know. I see you. I know. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. How was the Iron Maiden concert? It was great. They they played just the hits. So they, we didn't have to listen to any of their new songs that they <laughs> that no one's interested in. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, Eric... So you were yes. you were a referral from uh, one of our previous guests, John uh, Pekovic. Did I say that right? Yes. I, yes. I, I think I said that yes. right because I screwed it up on his podcast episode. That's okay. You probably don't have a lot of Serbians down in uh, in Florida. I do so, not. You yeah. know, <laughs> we grew up in Cleveland, and they were uh, John was the lead singer and guitar player of this band death of samantha as you probably found out when you had them on the show yes um and they were my sort of gateway drug band when i was very young the local band that you know you like a lot and they kind of hip you the other cool forgotten musics of your region or whatever and i just saw them a bunch and they're still one of my favorite bands very underrated and um still keep in touch with john about a year ago a couple days ago i got up on stage and did a song with them at the closing of uh, all of our favorite club from those years and I got up and did a song with them, and it was the first time that actually ever happened for all the years I've known those guys. So, um, and I did a really long article, like a huge article about them for the Ugly Things magazine that came out like last winter. I think it's number 49. And yeah, he's just a very funny, interesting guy, and we've, we've remained friends over, over the years. So it's nice that he, uh, he threw my hat in this ring or whatever, t shirt, I guess I should say. Threw my t shirt in this Threw ring. the t shirt. Yeah, there you go. There yeah, you go. Yeah. John, we had a we had a good time with John. We we spent probably what the first 5 to 7 minutes of the the episode just talking about hamburgers. <laughs> so so that was a little that was a little crazy and he picked the uh 1967 record from Love called Forever Changes. Familiar mm-hmm. familiar with that record? Yeah, 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 of course, yeah. That's cool. I should listen to that probably by now, but you know, life gets in the way. But uh, hamburgers, huh? What did he have to say about hamburgers? Uh, he just talked about how he, <laughs> the, well, the shirt that he was wearing was from one of the local greasy, uh, oh, you know, okay. greasy dives. And, and so then we yeah. were talking about hamburger joints because apparently, I guess, oh, okay. Columbus. Ohio is the hamburger Akron. Akron. That's what it was. It was Akron. That's like the birthplace yeah. of hamburgers. So, also, I might add the birthplace of Chrissy Hind of the Pretenders, and it is her birthday today. Just oh. want to throw that in. Wow. There you go. Yes. Yes. We. Yes. She. Although she is a vegetarian and doesn't eat hamburgers, <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, we yes. we actually uh, talked the Pretenders. First record with Doug Gillard, uh, very early on course, this yeah. year. So that was. I love that album, and yeah, I've talked with him about that. You know, you could tell. I remember even noticing he he could play that choppy kind of stuff that James Honeyman Scott could play, and that was really cool to see live because I never got to see that original line of the Pretenders. That was just before I started to see shows, kind of. And um, although a few years ago, so Chrissy Hind had a vegetarian restaurant in Akron, and she actually moved back. I think she lives in Akron still on and off. Um, she moved back to take care of her mother and then opened up this restaurant. And needless to say, that full vegetarian restaurant did not last in Akron 
for many years, but we got to go there. Um, it was around Christmas time and it was a random Wednesday afternoon. It was kind of dead. And I went with a friend of mine and we're like, Oh, cool. We're eating at Chris Ann's restaurant. Finally, you know, and we're eating and there's really hardly anyone there. And by the door, we see this small woman in all black and a cool leather coat talking to what looks like they're doing this sort of hugs, you know, like goodbye, see you later. And I'm like, Oh, that must be someone with their family probably visiting for the holiday. And then it dawns on me that that's Chrissy Hind right there, you know? And um, I'd seen pretenders later and I've seen her a few years ago, solo do a kind of thing in Brooklyn, but anyway, I never got to say hi to her or anything. I was going to go over and say hi, but I just thought, I don't want to interrupt this nice family moment that she seems to be having. And then next thing I looked up from my veggie burger and she was gone. So didn't get my chance of talking to her. But um, she's much smaller in person than I thought she would be. You know, she's such a titan on stage. So uh, We love Chrissy here. So I know oh, that. Yeah. yeah, of course. I know, I know there's going to be a couple more episodes down the pike where we'll we'll be talking pretenders. Learning to crawl, yeah. definitely for, for me. So, Yeah. I'm actually going to write something about that for because it's the 35th anniversary of that record this year, EGADS. Um, maybe it's 34th. I'm going to write about it for a, a website. So There you go. Anyway, yeah. So when I reached out to you initially, you indicated that you had just written a long piece <laughs> about uh, this box set that's coming out from Peter Loeffner. Yeah. Now this year's that's funny. You should say that in that way. For years, um, growing up, Peter Loeffner uh, in Cleveland was sort of this mythical character you'd hear about in bits and pieces, um, and then more and more. And pretty soon, he became to be. Death of Samantha actually covered one of his songs, Sylvia Plath. And you know, he was in um, he was in Rocket from the Tombs, which was the pre Dead Boys band. Right. You know, he wrote Ain't, Ain't It Fun, which I guess we'll probably talk about. Yes. And he wrote um, a couple of the, you know, some of the songs that were ended up being kind of on the first Dead Boys and the early Perugu singles and all that. So, um, you know, and, and Death of Samantha and this other band, Prison Shake, that I grew up seeing in Cleveland, the guy from that band, um, Robert Griffin, he ended up being a manager at a coffee shop that I worked at and he would make me these mixtapes with like forgotten or early Cleveland bands like the Pagans and the Mirrors and Rocket from the Tombs. And that's when I first really actually heard some Peter Loeffner stuff. And then years later, I started noticing and I loved it all. It was really great. And it, it's one of these characters. I could talk about it forever, but that's a show for another day. Um, a very interesting character died extremely young at 24 of cirrhosis. So that's a lot of drinking. And, um, he, and so, uh, really great that Smogvale after all these years took, there were a couple compilations and releases here and there over the years that were nice. Um, but they really took a huge amount of time and effort to put together this extremely beautiful, like monolithic, Holy grail for a Cleveland music fan. But I think a lot of people sort of Holy grail of a character who should be remembered, I think in like the whole new wave era of American music. Right. So, and then I find out as years go on, people, I would hear people from Cleveland say Lochner, as in C.K., Lochner. And mm. it always kind of, I'm like, is this like some Celtic deal I don't know about? You know, and um, the pronunciation or whatever. And then that really is Lochner. That's how it's pronounced. That's how Peter Lochner said his name. So after all these years, it, it threw another layer of strangeness on for me personally on the whole the whole story of peter lochner after all these years but the box set is freaking excellent and you i know it's probably it's pricey but you should track it down if you can because it's really worth it's just a beautiful set as a hardcover book inside with amazing old ads from lost 
Cleveland newspapers and lots of his own writings because he was like a rock critic too. And it, the music is just, it really shows a depth of songwriting that you didn't exactly know, know as much about before. And it's mastered great and blah, blah, blah. So um pretty excited when that came out um, as our, bass player of New Bomb Turks, Matt Reber, put it. He said, um, I feel like we've been waiting for this this set for the majority of our adult lives. Because there was always rumors there were more tapes out there, and you hear things here or there. And maybe Smogville was working on something, I don't know, and then all of a sudden here it came, and it's pretty great. So I wrote a long kind of review and reflection on that for uh, for the new Ugly Things magazine that just came out recently. You you talked about him being part of Rocket Rocket from the Tombs, not to be confused with Rocket from the Crib. Way different. Right. Um, right. So that was kind of the mothership for both Dead Boys and Per Ubu. Is that correct? Yeah. And I should say really quick, just to throw a nod out to my book, We Never Learn, um, that when I interviewed uh, John Reese from Rocket from the Crypt, he told me they named their band after Rocket from the Tombs and they love Crypt Records. So they threw that together and they're like, Nobody knows. They're like, nobody knows who the hell Rocket from the Tunes is. No one's ever going to ask us about that. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty funny. But um, yeah, so basically without going into it, and you can read about it somewhere or another, I'm sure. But um, essentially it was a kind of a collection of, you know, sort of new musicians in Cleveland that were kind of getting over the the sort of weirdo blues scene that was kind of a little bit tiny bit around Cleveland at that time. Um, sort of leftover 60s kind of blues rock and just, you know, the classic early 70s board guys in a dead industrial town looking to form a band and um, having a cool practice space in a shitty part of town down by the Oily River or Lake, I should say, and had a practice space down there. And it was so it was like, without going into every dumb detail, because people went in and out a little bit, but you had like Cheetah Chrome was in that from the Dead Boys. And Crocus Behemoth, who was later David Thomas, the singer of Per Ubu, he was in Rocket from the Tombs. And Peter Lochner, like, you know, was like the main guitarist. And he had a bunch of other side bands that seemed to come and go really quickly. He went through a lot of bands, which kind of leads you to believe that he probably wasn't the easiest guy to be in a band with. But he was also seemed to be just bursting with ideas. And every band was a little bit different than the other. And solo, he was kind of like a Dylan and Lou Reed sort of mix solo guy who was sort of folky but he'd get with bands and make this weirder stuff and then basically at the very end of rocks from the tombs they only played what was it something like seven shows or something at the very end of that um and para ubu was sort of forming i I, stib baiters did i believe practiced with i don't think he ever did a show or he got up and did like two songs with rocket from the tombs but um that didn't last very long. And then they, him and Cheetah formed Frankenstein, which basically was kind of a glammy thing that turned into the dead boys. Gotcha. So there you go. Gotcha. That's a quickie, you know, there's a lot of other dumb side stories, but that's basically, and all of this happened, you know, within probably 18 months, somewhere around 1975, you know, 74, 75. So that's, I think people, when you grow up in Cleveland, you have this real fucking pride for like, when you throw in the electric eels through this weird noisy thing that were playing in and around Columbus and Cleveland at that time, even earlier, and they were really noisy and weird, but kind of punky. And you throw in the mirrors and you throw in these other bands and then later stuff like, you know, the cramps kind of came from Cleveland and Devo and then Chrissy Hind and all that, you know, you have this real pride for that whole era that it's kind of like, you can arguably say that, you know, once the Stooges were winding down, that Cleveland was like a pretty big deal up there with, with New York as far as forming like the whole early punk 
stuff, but it's just that these bands, being Clevelanders, were either lazy, drunk, or too far from the industry to really ever get noticed for 30 years or whatever, you know? So, yeah. Am I talking too much? I'm probably talking. Too no, much. absolutely no. not. <laughs> no, that's that that that's great. I'm I'm getting I'm getting a history lesson right here on on <laughs> Cleveland Cleveland music. So I I do want to ask you one thing because when I when I went on to Spotify to listen to some some Rocket from the Tombs, the Spotify synopsis of them, and I'm hope, hoping that you can you can clarify this. Spotify says Rocket was a Cleveland unpunk outfit what does that even mean unpunk i don't know i don't know probably somebody somebody is probably typing something and got it wrong i'm frankly i'm surprised there's any of it on spotify except for if maybe i guess smogvale got some stuff on there because rocket the first rocket from the tombs real recordings that came out were a kind of a bootleggy seven inch of a couple songs right around i don't know maybe 88 and then in 91 there was a record called life stinks that was like some of their their, that lost demo thing that they made in some live stuff. And I think it was 91, maybe 90. I don't remember. Um, and that's great. And then was until, you know, the, whatever that was early, mid thousand, 2000, somewhere that Smogdale did a proper remastering and everything they could find of the double album of rocket from the tombs. Um, proto punk is your pretty standard phrase for bands like that. You know, okay. they were sort of noodling around with new music and the sort of angry, attitude and and wanting to kind of reclaim some of the fun shorter songs of their youth after you know rock got kind of stadium and big and huge in the early 70s and sort of bloated and you know here they were living in this kind of i mean cleveland has this this idea that we're a big rock and roll town and, and we are in ways but by the early 70s it was a really dead city right up there with detroit you know and the downtown was just downright scary after work hours you know so um that's kind of around where they lived and uh you know and they had no prospects most of the bands every time i talked to bands from back then who lived around then you know there were a few bars that even had live music and they wanted cover bands popular songs of the day or maybe just an old blues act or something and so they, they didn't always have a lot of places to play either in fact one of the things that Peter Lochner box that taught me was what a big deal Sandusky, Ohio was, which is where Cedar Point is, which has the most roller roller, uh, uh, roller coasters in the whole world. It's oh, a yeah, great yeah, park. Yeah. It's very fun to go. Great place to go to. But that's about all I knew about Sandusky. It's on the water. But um, apparently they had some clubs that you could get a show at. Peter Lochner, a couple of his bands played there. And... Um, Anyway, you know, it was like that your classic where most of that proto-punk came from, you know, dying industrial towns that had really crappy neighborhoods where you could live for, you know, $20 a month or whatever and just come up with noise and leave your equipment there, you know. So, yeah, I would, I would say proto-punk is a pretty standard thing. I don't know what unpunk is. I guess unpunk would be not punk. I just wasn't sure if I just wasn't cool enough to know what the, you know, phrase was, but you know, cause when well, you're he, talking to a guy who threw the name gunk punk on the front right. of his book, so please, it's, you know, let's at this point, there's so many names and subgenres and, and, you know, yeah. I wouldn't worry about it. And, and Wayne reminds me all the time that I'm not punk and that my definition <laughs> of punk is just completely wrong. So, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm cool with it. That's, that's fine. I'm, that's fine. Uh, yeah. I'm the I'm the Americana guy of of the, the 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 duo here. So he's the punk punk guy. 
Well, I mean, your unapologetic nature is what is makes you just a little bit punk. Well, yeah, yeah. I don't, yeah. <laughs> I don't apologize for the love that I have of certain bands. So I guess that's punk. I don't know. Um, so, so while we're, yeah, at- well, I mean, just to shut up about that is that I, it's just, it was that era, which probably was about again, a year and a half where bands didn't really even have that word yet, you know? And even though there was a flyer from 1971, a suicide show in New York that says punk rock music night or something oh. like that. So 1971. And there's also some other flyer for a band from like 65 that says punk rock on it, something like that. So, you know, that's a fun argument to get into when, you know, where, where that word came from and when it was around and all that crap. So anyway. Well, since you've written a book on what, what's punk and, and what's not. So, so I'm going to throw out a bunch of bands or musicians and you tell me if they're punk or not because i i know that oh wayne, god wayne and i have had this debate on a, on a couple occasions for a couple of these bands and then we've talked about this on certain other episodes so so let me throw a couple of these out so the smiths wow, okay we, we we talked about morrissey earlier do you do you feel like the smiths are a punk band okay so you, of course you, you, it's impossible to get a straight answer out of such questions you know so but let me preface this with saying that like for me punk is definitely a sort of an attitude and a a sense of humor is a big part of it which i think kind of got lost in the hardcore years of the 80s and um i think i've always found morrissey and the early smith stuff to be pretty funny actually everyone i talked about he's morose and too serious and pretentious i think he's actually pretty funny in that sort of oscar wildy kind of way Mm -hmm. and in a sense yeah i mean yeah I mean, I think that those guys were really, he, Morrissey had a, a fanzine when he was a teenager that he made all, all about the New York Dolls. I think there were three issues, maybe five issues. And he obsessed about the New York Dolls. He loved the New York Dolls. He did not like the Ramones early on. And then later he liked the Ramones. Okay. Um, so I think those guys grew up with that. And I think Johnny Marr definitely knew that stuff. And the, the most, oh my God, again, this is going to be embarrassing to say this for the next few minutes, but the most punk sort of thing that I guess that they did was just like, to imagine that they were acting that way and wearing cardigans and flouncing around the stage with flowers only about three or four years removed from like when the sex pistols broke up is, is pretty funny and pretty. And I think it, it actually did piss off a lot of people and then gave a lot of other people a new road to go down with this, these new kind of more raw sounds. So yes, to answer your question, as silly as it is, the Smiths are Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, I think we can all agree that the clash are punk. Yeah, sure. Yep. Okay. All right. So, so Wayne, I do like one punk band, right? I know. That's, okay. <laughs> okay. That is the one. Okay. I, I've never taken that away from you. You'll never take that away from me. Uh, what about the, what about the cult? Would you consider the cult punk? No, not really. I mean, like they, they have an energy and all that. They were obviously inspired by that and came out of it. Weren't they originally called Southern death cult? Yes. Then they were Death Cult, and then they were The Cult. I saw The Cult on that. What fucking album was that? Not Electric, but the one right before that with um, Love. Love. Uh, yeah, that I think that one. I think it was that tour that I saw them on, and um, the only time I ever saw them. It was good. And, you know, again, those guys all came out of that, I'm sure. Isn't Billy Duffy, I think, was a guitar player? Wasn't he like... He was like at one of the first Sex Pistol show or something. But um, so yes. they were inspired by it. It's a, for me, you know, it's a little more... That's a little more retro and trying to be like the doors or something, but um yeah, but then Jim Morrison was kind of a, a punk in his own way too. So um if I had to if you're pressing me against a wall here, 
I'm going to say no, just because I think they're just kind of a big rock band. But, um, you know, that's just me. Okay. Now, now here's where, here's where I'm going to get controversial. Green Day. Oh, boy. Oh, no. I, well, I mean, I mean, yeah, because, again, same thing, came up, loved all that stuff, I'm sure. Um, I know that Billy Joe Armstrong, I met those guys, but um, nice guys. I know Billy Joe Armstrong, you know, one of his first gateway bands was like R.E.M., if you put the weird timeline of that together, it's sort of strange to think about, but, um, but I loved REM too. I still do. But, um, and his sister had some early REM records or whatever. And that was kind of his, his road into listening to different sorts of bands. But, um, but I'm sure that, yeah, they grew up in that whole San Francisco, like all ages scene or whatever, in the sense that they play fast and hooky and they're really into the Ramones. I, I mean, yeah, they're punk in that way. It's, again, you get into these subs, they're more pop punk to me. And they're more like that, that kind of California thing that I don't, I just have never really been into that much. Um, you know, it's not because I always think of production for me, my favorite punk bands always have a really raw kind of guitar and sort of, if not lo-fi, at least really kind of ragged production and really sort of a little bit noisier or trashy. And I feel like Green Day records are always like fairly clean. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like, I, you know, I love the Go-Go's or something. And to me, the Green Day is almost more in line with, with this kind of California beachy, kind of pop you know like the beach boys or something you know which is fine it's just you know it's not what i would call punk but it is a kind of punk and if it inspired a bunch of other kids to go look into the buzzcocks or something that's that's fine with me but they're they're just not a they're not a band i i you know i care much about but i appreciate why i appreciate how much they've done that they've stuck around i appreciate their hooks they you know they're fine they're certainly better than the other kind of bands of that era that, you know, offspring and stuff, I really don't care about, but, um, but I, yeah, you know, green day is fine, but they're just not my version of whatever I think punk is. Yeah. What do you, what's your opinion of all those early 2000 bands, you know, like the newfound glory and good Charlotte and, uh, Oh God, I just have no, nothing. Don't care at all. Yeah. I just, you know, I mean, you know, it's fine. I'm glad somebody made money off it, but that's fine. Um, right, but it's just right. not my not my thing, you know. And we've got uh, we've got Tom from the Menzingers coming on the podcast in a few weeks from 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 now. Uh, That'll probably be funny. Yeah, you familiar with the Menzingers? Yeah. A little bit, yeah, and it, you know, yeah, a little bit. Would you consider them punk? Yeah, punk enough. <laughs> is that is that a genre? Yeah, the punk enough. <laughs> punk enough. I'm kidding. I don't. I, I don't know. You know, it's weird when you're actually in a band too. Then you know, I can actually hear voices floating off in the internet distance going like, what is that guy? And his band wasn't so blah, blah, you know, you get into that whole thing. And, and, and when I wrote my book, it was like, you know, you just have to go into it with like, you know, I know what I like and I think I know what all these other bands are kind of into. So I can sort of try to put them together as some kind of scene that happened, but I'm probably going to miss a few bands here and there, or I'm going to leave out a couple bands that other people should have thought should have been in there. And you just have to kind of, go for it, you know, and just, you know, say what you think. I'm not writing about who killed Kennedy or how to cure cancer or whatever, you know, I'm just, you know, I'm writing about a bunch of fun bands. And so if somebody wants to call the Menzingers like the best punk band they've ever heard, that's fine. That's their thing, you know, but it's just, you know, and they're fine. They're, you know, I'm looking at a poster right now. It was my fit. One of my favorite possessions is it's a Sire records poster from 1978 
when uh, Seymour Stein ran Sire Records, you know, the punk records weren't selling what they thought they were going to sell. And punk in America got a bad reputation as like violence and, you know, dirty and not selling, you know, at all. And so he was like, you know, Seymour Stein kind of credits himself with saying, let's start calling it new wave more, you know, Mm -hmm. let's not call it punk. There's a million people probably say, I call it new wave first, but the poster, it was an ad campaign. It says new wave rock and roll, get behind it before it gets past you. I love this poster. And there's a Richard Helen Avoidoids, the Saints' first album, the Dead Boys' first album, the Ramones' first album, Ramones' Leave Home, and a Talking Heads record. All of the same poster all came out roughly in the same year. Wow. And it's just amazing to think what Sire Records did in such a short time. And, and um, But anyway, you know, calling it New Wave Rock and Roll is as good as a, of a name as any other, I suppose. So it's just interesting you're asking me that question as I'm staring at a poster with at least five of my favorite records of all time. Anyway. That's cool. That's cool. <laughs> so last one that I'll throw out of my list here. Oh, so, boy. So Johnny Cash, would you consider Johnny Cash a punk? Yeah, well, that gets into the, well, that, that gets into the whole, like, how far back do you go with the whole right. attitudinal? Yeah, because, you know, sonically, he always kept his stuff pretty much really raw and simple and a certain amount of chords. His voice had that kind of ragged, a little bit of a sneer to it from pretty early on. I mean, yeah, you go, I mean, a lot of the punks that were starting out, you know, when they were really little, they heard like Rockabilly and stuff like Jerry Lee Lewis and all that. And they wanted to get back to that kind of fun, snotty little teenage, rough, ragged two minute singles. You know, that's a lot of what a lot of the early punk bands kind of wanted to get back to as, you know, rock songs where we can be 20 minutes long about dancing gnomes and starships and stuff you know and it's like they wanted you know to write songs about saturday night or whatever so in that sense sure why not but um and i'm sure johnny cash probably actually saw punk bands like it would not surprise me if i heard that he went to he saw the ramones once or something but and he ended up working with like rick rubin who clearly knows his way around some punk and you know so in that way yeah but i mean did he make punk albums i don't know that's you know I don't think he went about it in that mindset or something, Yeah. but um, yeah, you know, sure. Why not? (laughs) (laughs) And and Wayne, I'm surprised you're not saying, well, how about Elvis Presley when he sings James Taylor's cannonball? I have no idea what you're talking about. I, I in good spirit with Eric because I absolutely agree with everything he's saying. I, I mean, uh, I think Johnny Cash was a, it was a punk, but not necessarily made punk records. Right. Uh, I think it, it. I definitely think that it's an attitude. I can't believe anybody would call either of Eric's bands not punk. I think they're. <laughs> that's pretty clear. Um, but yeah, I think it's much more. I mean, like I say, the Clash. They don't sound like the Sex Pistols, but they're equally as important to, to what people think of as punk rock. I think they made it a little more political, that you could understand. But telling you know saying fuck you on TV, that's. That's punk rock. I mean, yeah. So, At the same yeah. time, too, what I thought was cool about like about Joe Strummer was like their, their rep has become so political over the years. But if he, his lyrics actually, Joe Strummer's lyrics particularly, they're actually sort of like weird and oddly poetic, and he throws out kind of catchphrases or certain political figures of the time. But they're sort of it, it's it's kind of strange how he puts things together. I think he he let some holes in there, you know, to make, to allow you to think. And I don't think they were quite as didactic as maybe their, their, their reputation 
uh, has it, you know, I mean, white riots, pretty straightforward and, and yeah. guns of Brixton or something, but you know, um, and a lot of it's pretty straightforward and that's fine, but I don't think it's quite as, as, you know, militaristic or, 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 you know, whatever dogmatic is, as, as, as people do. And then musically they went all over the fucking place. I listen, I sat at work the other day and listened to the entire Sandinista for the first time in years so all the way through. So, yeah, it really is. I mean, I'm like on one of those that always says like, well, we trim it down to two and a half albums and it'd be their best, you know, but, um, no. but it's all, it ends up being their most, no, I know it ends up being probably their most influential record as far as where music went, you know? But is anyway. it safe to say that Joe, Joe is the punk in the band? Cause like, so for instance, I, I think I'll bring up Lords of the new church some, somewhere down, down the road here, <laughs> but, um, yeah. but big audio dynamite, which was Mick's spinoff after, yeah. you know, he got kicked out of the band. Yeah. It's not punk. Yeah, uh, no, but it, it's, it's got a spirit of sort of playfulness sure. that I, I think not the best records in the world to say the least, but um, I like the first record. Okay. And, and uh, you know, it has a certain spirit, but also Don Letts was in that band who turns out to be like, he was a big deal what, DJ around the scene and he ended up making a documentary a few years ago, punk attitude or whatever the hell it was called. And it's pretty good documentary. So, I mean, there's people involved with it who came out of that scene, obviously, but they were, you know, they were trying to, I don't know, move things in a you know, different direction or whatever. Yeah. So we've talked about every other band except for yours, I feel like. Okay. So <laughs> that's always a good idea. <laughs> so why don't we actually talk some new Bomb Turks? So uh, you had indicated that uh, you guys are getting ready to play some shows this year or at the end of the year. Yeah, I mean, basically, once I moved to New York a while back, um, once we kind of just like ended the band, like, okay, we're not really going to be like a working band anymore. Within like a year, somebody offered us some great show that they were going to fly us to or whatever. We're like, okay, sure, let's go do that. And then I moved and we were like, well, as long as we're still having fun doing this and think we can put on a decent show, if something good comes up, sure, why not? And it's pretty hard to say no to like, hey, you want to play a festival in Spain? Sure. You know, and um, we're all still friends. And, and uh, uh, other three members, Jim, Matt and Sam, all live back in Columbus and they got kids and I'm living here and um, with a cat and my girlfriend and um and we get together when we can you know just to have some fun and try to you know one of the things was a lot of the bands that we were compared to early on i feel like real early on like saints or the dead boys you know um maybe the heartbreakers or something johnny thunder's heartbreakers it's like oh you know this kind of high energy music mc5 whatever it can only last like a record or two and nobody can nobody can keep up that kind of action for too long you know and and part of me as years went by kind of went that was part of why uh, what i liked about the band is i wanted to try to prove like you could keep up some energy and you could you know you try different songwriting things and all that but you want to I, I was like yeah i'm no one died of an overdose yet, you know? So, you know, it's like, we're just going to, you know, we can keep doing this. And um, so as long as we're having fun. So yeah, it had been a while, actually we did. Um, I'm actually blanking on the last time we played, but um, Oh, we played, uh, well, we played Jim's 50th birthday party. And then that was a while ago, but usually each summer something comes up, you know, and, and usually in Europe, some kind of festival or something and nothing really happened this summer. And we're like, I mean, that's okay. Let's take some time off. Cause we actually, we played a good festival, a slovenly records, good label. They had a festival down in Puerto Rico last March and we played that. And that was really fun. 
And we're like, all right, that's cool. Let's just take some time off and just see where everything's going and, and, um, whatever. And, you know, when you're when, at our age, you know, it's like, you're, if you got to go somewhere, you're taking away like vacation time from your job and time away from your family and blah, 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 you know, and everybody's work, it's hard to get together. So all of a sudden, long story short, this guy got in touch with us who wanted to help book some shows. And we're like, yeah, sure. But you know, buddy, we're not really a working band. We play when we can. And he gets it, you know, and he just found us some fun, good shows and uh, that are going to be somewhat easy enough to get to. Um, so we're doing a couple of these Christmas shows that, that Reverend Horton Heat does every Christmas time. We're doing two of those. Um, we're doing four shows in February with uh, Nine Pound Hammer, who is a great band from Kentucky that was on Crip Records when we were on Crip Records back in the 90s. And whenever we hear from or bump into those guys once in a while, we're like, ah, we should do some shows together because they still play Once in a Blue Moon. So we're going to do four shows with them, and that'll be really fun, I think, down south in towns we haven't played in years. And Asheville, North Carolina, where we never played. And then, um, and then we're doing, uh, what is it, three, four other shows with this band called Adam H, who are pretty fun. So yeah, just, you know, I think after that, that's about nine shows between like around Thanksgiving time to Valentine's Day, right around there. The dates are on our Facebook page and all that crap. But um, just look like fun shows. And then, you know, um, that'll probably be it for a little while too, because that'll be the most big chunk of shows that we've done in a while. So cool. Yeah, uh, it should be fun. I wasn't super familiar with you guys other than just a name. So I, I did listen. To oh that. my God. I what? know. I know. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Man. Yeah. <laughs> you, you missed that million selling single we had? What the uh, hell is wrong with you? Well, I did go back. I, I listened to a few. So I, uh, I'm, I, I now put in my, uh, one of my, my playlists on Spotify. So I've got jukebox lean in the, in the, oh, uh, nice. in the, in the set list now. I love, right. I dig the song. Is the song about Fonzie? You know, when, Wait, when, when no, Fonzie it's, it's not about the Fonzie. jukebox. And if anything, I think I was thinking of, I think I thought of that line. Isn't that line in some the Van Halen song where it says, um, what is he saying? Um, oh God, I'm blanking out. Oh, but there's for, some for hilarious. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Record machine back against the record machine. I think, I, I think I was in a, I was in this diner trying to write lyrics and maybe that popped up or something. There and, and there was a jukebox in the corner. They had a good jukebox there. And I remember looking at it and I thought, oh, and I was leaning on it, trying to play songs and avoiding writing lyrics. And I'm like, Oh, just fucking sit down and write some lyrics. So. Did I knock out? I mean, I know digital lists on Spotify can be endless, but I did I knock out any of your Americana bands so that you could slide in Jukebox Lane, or did you just no, sort of add it in? There? I just added to it. My, <laughs> okay. my 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 playlists are all over the place. They really are. So, well, do you like that? Speaking of Americana, do you know the band Long Riders? Do you know the Long Riders? I'm not familiar. They were a, no. They were an LA band from like the early mid '80s, kind of mid '80s. 
pretty good, like um, sort of sort of CCR like. Okay. Um, and they're back. They're back together, and they're going to be on the road pretty soon. I think they're on the road already. So if you see that name, they'll probably come down through Florida somewhere. There we go. But they're good. You might like them. Yeah. Cool. Anyway, not punk though. Just let me point that out. Not not punk. Maybe unpunk, but not yeah. punk. No, that's that that's cool. I I don't know what to expect because I am going to go see the Menzingers in a couple months. They are coming here to Florida, so. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm a little nervous because a few of my friends who are more into, you know, more punk, they are also going mm-hmm. to the show and they're like, uh, you don't know what you're getting yourself into, do you? So we'll, we'll <laughs> I don't see. think I've ever actually seen them live now that I think about it. I don't think yeah. I have, yeah. but yeah, I mean, I've heard them, but I haven't, I don't think I've seen them live. I do have one other thing. Um, in regards to your to your music, so I, I was listening to Snap Decision and trying to figure mm-hmm. out what the lyrics were. So I looked on your Facebook page, and this this just seemed like the most punk rock response. So somebody also was looking for the lyrics, and they said, "Hey, I just sent the singer a message and asked him for the lyrics." And then somebody said, "Did he ever respond?" And the response from from this guy named Tom said. Yeah, he said the lyrics are included on the record. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. They are. So, and the CD, for that matter. And and a cassette on a couple of those records. Go buy so the record. They're out there. You want the lyrics? Go. go buy the record. That seems like such a... <laughs> I, don't even know if, <laughs> I don't even know if I meant it quite that blatantly. Yeah, I probably did. But it might have been my mood. <laughs> might have been my mood that day. But, um, you know, it was just kind of like, well, they are on there, right? I was like, oh, right. Um, digital age. And... Um, that would mean I'd have to go back, pull the record out, look at a lyric that I haven't looked at in 10 years. Right. And cause we don't do that song much anymore at all. Okay. Um, and that's, there's a lot of words in that song. And then that would mean I'd have to sit there and type them out for this guy. And I could, you know, and maybe I will. Going to. I mean, maybe I, I'm actually pretty good at that. I mean, I used to, you know, we, back in the day, as I say, when we had a, a PO box, man, I religiously wrote back, fans i made little postcards and uh, you know at kinko's and I'd, I'd write back answers and it just seems to me like you know hey kids you got google and i'll look it up right right so so if you if you were to be or no you know i'll give i like to think that my lyrics see you, you can you can make them of, of them what you will it's really more up to you to you know I don't know. Those are bullshit answers too i anyway. I, I hate Sorry. artists i hate artists who do that the do that <laughs> Well, it's yeah. whatever it means to you. It's like, no, no, no. You wrote the song, so tell me what the stinking right. lyrics are. Uh, right. Anyways, well, let me let me ask you this, and we'll and then we'll move to to uh, the record that you chose. So, if you had to be remembered for just one New Bombs Turk song, which one would you want oh, it to be? Yikes! Um, I don't know. You know, we have over ten albums of material, right? Um, roughly. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think it, 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 I like as much as like the very first song and the very first album, Born to Lose Lautrec, because I didn't know what I was doing with lyrics at the time. I was just sort of fumbling my way through. And I felt like that was the first time we had a couple singles out already. And I felt like that was the first time I like, oh, I have like a theme. And then I wrote these lyrics behind it. And I was like kind of happy with that. And then I thought the song, you know, the riff and everything was really good. And I just that whole song kind of came together. It was a good first song. But then I also really like... Jeez, I don't know. I like a lot of songs. I like this song, Streamline Your Skull, our last song on At Rope's End, which is one of our later records, just because I like 
we tried to do something a little different with the production and I like my lyrics a lot on that one. Um, but I think more in terms of albums and individual songs for us. And I'd probably say our, our first album, Destroy Boy or Nightmare Scenario, which was our first album with our new drummer, Sam Brown. Um, so those albums really is what I think of in terms of that. But um, so sorry, that's not a very straightforward answer for you. But, no, uh, that's, you know. that's good. And if you want the lyrics. Or, or our cover of records. Merry Christmas Babies, our cover of Merry Christmas Baby, Please Come Home. the stuff with the livids too oh thanks thanks uh, i i was listening to that while i was watching some youtube videos actually how you guys do even do a cover of sonic reducer oh we tried to yeah one time i think but um we covered this song savage eyes it's a really great old kind of forgotten new york punk band called rollerball we used to cover that one and we covered uh, teenage news a new york dolls song but uh yeah that was a band i had from gosh when was it i guess about about like 2011 to 2014-ish, right around there. And we did uh, about five singles, play a lot regionally. We did one small tour through like uh, Cleveland and Columbus and uh, Philly. And we played we played South by Southwest, of course. Um, we did like, uh, you know, it was one of those like six shows in two days or something. Um, so it was a lot of fun, but just, you know, just ended band's end so you know but we're thinking about doing a there's a guy in france who wants to do a a 12 inch album collection of the singles and if we have anything extra which we have a couple little things maybe so one of these days maybe we'll get together that because i kind of thought of all those songs we ended up doing as seven inch singles i kind of was thinking of them as an album i really was hoping we could do a whole album it just didn't work out that way but um so maybe that'll happen in the near future who knows cool cool all right, one last question before we jump over to uh, the record. Yeah. And, I, and I'm pretty sure I know what the answer is, and this is going to make Wayne very happy. So uh, <laughs> the question is, Toto's Africa, good or bad song? Now, it's kind of like shooting fish in a barrel, and I think it's easy to just hate on that song. I, I don't necessarily like that song. It is a pop song of see, I'm trying to be very diplomatic here. It's a pop song of its era. I don't really like it. I certainly don't like anything else I ever heard from Toto. And I really hate Weezer's version. And in fact, Weezer doing that song made me think, you know, maybe Toto isn't as terrible as I saw it. And instead of going back <laughs> and instead of going back and listening to Toto, which would be a waste of time, I've recently been obsessing about Nick Gilder, forgotten uh, Canadian power oh, pop guy. Really. The so there's a roundabout, city. yes. So there's a roundabout stupid answer to your somewhat weird question. So there you go. So the I'm answer wasn't a weird question. So the answer is no. The answer is nah, not really. Okay. All right. Well, <laughs> Talk about a definitive answer. That was so punk. Not really. Nothing <laughs> says punk like not really. You, you know, anyway. you, I, I am, but I kind of expected that answer because John 
kind of gave the same answer. And so did Doug, who Doug Gillard referred us over to John. So you guys. Oh, Doug and I have this whole thing about we we like this song Moonlight Feels Right, which was a super syrupy AM gold 1978 cheesy song. But we like that. So, I mean, it's hard to like, you know, when you like somebody who when you're talking to someone who likes, oh, 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 it's magic by pilot. You know, I'm in no position to uh, to say that Toto's all that terrible, but they are. They you know. <laughs> all right. Well, when we exchanged emails, so we talked about revisiting the first Dead Boys record, um, yes. uh, Young, Loud, and Snotty, and you thought that that was just too easy to talk about. So you chose what record to revisit? You you suggested the first Dead Boys, and then I said that that was, how about the second one, right? Yes, so why the second one? Well, so I, I just think, one, I think that like, you know, not that the Dead Boys is as well known, the first album is as well known as The Clash of the Pistols of the Ramones, but um, I think most punk fans by this time, my God, um, would at least know Young, Loud, and Snotty, and there's been a lot written and talked about it over the years, and um, also I think it's fun to you know, it's like if you say you want to talk about a Scorsese movie, like, oh, we could talk about Raging Bull, but let's talk about After Hours because nobody talks about After Hours. And maybe there's either more to say or whatever I do say about After Hours will sound infinitely more interesting than me regurgitating what I said about Raging Bull. So, um, so I, and anyway, I just, I, I like the second one. I think that it's one of those records that instantly when it came out, was somewhat maligned even by its own makers because the band was, you know, you're classic. The band was sort of falling apart. A couple of guys wanted to move back to Cleveland. A couple of guys wanted to get out of New York. Maybe not stay in New York. There were drug problems. You know, um, the label didn't seem all that interested anymore. They gave him a bad producer, you know, producer didn't really get it. They recorded it in Florida, actually, I think in Tampa, maybe. Okay. Um, with Felix Paparaldi of Mountain or whatever, I think, yes. produced it, um, who apparently seemed quite disinterested. And who is it? You know, you know, the famous line, I say it's Elvis Costello. Other people said it was uh, uh, Brian Eno who said you get 20 years to make your first record and six months to make your second one. You know, and it's, it's, it's a classic case of that, too, where a couple of the songs are definitely a little unfaked. And as a Clevelander, and especially with this... Um, this Peter Lochner box set that's, that was coming out when you asked me to do this, I knew it was coming out, you know, ain't it fun had just become, you know, it's sort of like a mini sort of classic around certain Cleveland, you know, punky fans. And um, so, and that ended up somehow on the second dead boys record. Cause frankly, they didn't probably have enough songs to fill up a whole album. And they pulled out yet another one of Peter Lochner's old songs. And that's probably why it's one of the better songs on the record, because it had a little bit of years behind it. Yeah. She had pl- probably played it a number of times. And um, and it's just a great, great song. And, and, you know, when people say, oh, you know, uh, Guns N' Roses covered a Dead Boys song. Actually, Peter Lochner wrote it and performed it a few years earlier. But, yes, he would, they were obviously covering the Dead Boys version. So um, that's a long-winded answer. But um, <laughs> I just thought in classic manner – why talk about the first Ramones or maybe you can go, I don't know, let's talk about subterranean jungle. You know, sometimes I think it's, it's like that 33 and a third series, you know, that series of books, 33 and a third. Yeah. yeah. 
you know, kind of, you know, and so many people want to pitch like Led Zeppelin four and Abbey road, you know, it's like, why, what, you know, like we all kind of know about that stuff already. So, um, I am more than happy to talk about the first dead boys album any time of the day, any day. It's fucking great. And I love it, but it's kind of fun to give a little time to something that's somewhat maligned. And as we go on to talk about it, I can say why I think it's maligned or not shouldn't be maligned or whatever. So all of, all of that that you just talked about of, well, you know, everybody else has talked about those, you know, those records that they've talked about the dead boys first record because every song on that record is legit. Like it's right. Right. You know, great album. Yeah. Maybe. And Wayne, maybe, maybe Eric has answered the question as to why we're now almost 60 episodes into our podcast and we still haven't had a guest pick either a Rolling Stones record or a Beatles record. (laughs) Probably because it's just been done. Right. When I heard what you chose, I was like, that's, that's awesome. I mean, it's not, it's not well talked about. And it, and like I say, I'm extremely happy because in the last month and a half, I've had to listen to Bob Dylan, two Neil Youngs, a Leonard Cohen and a Joe Henry and James Taylor's greatest hit. So when, when he, I just to do a <laughs> hat. I believe I believe we that whole genre is unpunk, I think, if I remember correctly. Oh great okay. albums. I had a I had a ton of fun sure. listening to them, but I was so excited to hear something like this just I've I've listened to this probably twenty five times in the last two days and I cool. I loved every minute of it. Yeah. Well the thing too is like it, you know, I, I I know like I'm on this one of these many Facebook pages and it's called now playing. And, you know, you it's basically the rules are, you know, you just put an album, put a picture of the album you're listening to. That's it. Name of the album of the year came out in the label maybe. And if you want to go great stuff, love it, you know, whatever, but don't go off forever. And don't, you know, and somebody putting up to me, like putting up, you know, Sergeant Peppers, like, what's the point? Like, what are you doing? I mean, you know, like that's, you hear that in the hospital when you pop out of the womb, you know what I mean? Like, it was just, you know, but we're, we're obviously big music fans. We listen to all kinds of stuff all the time. And maybe there are people, I'm sure there are people probably under the age of 40 who haven't heard Sergeant Peppers a thousand million times and haven't heard every Bob Dylan record. So, and that's fine. And probably even way more people than that haven't heard the first Dead Boys record. But just if you're asking me, I just thought, well, it might be a little more interesting to talk about the second one. So anyway. Well, I think we're going to have a good time uh, just talking <laughs> about this. And, and you've kind of, yeah. Yeah, and you've kind of talked about a little bit of the bio info. So I usually give a, a real quick uh, version of you know the production, etc. So this is the second and final studio album by the by Dead Boys. Recorded and released in 78, uh, going back to what you were talking about, this was released uh, on Sire Records. You touched upon Felix Papalardi, who was the producer for this, had no business really um, producing right. uh, Dead Boys, which I just find fascinating that they would even think, hey, this is a great idea. This is the, this is the guy who, you know, produced some of the mountain records produce cream. I don't put mountain and cream and dead boys in the same sentence ever. Um, So it's it's just, it's just really interesting that, um, and, and on a couple of the songs, one of the things that, that came to mind was 
man, the producer didn't give a crap whatsoever. No, and and it's funny because it's so funny because as, as years and decades go on, I don't like mountain or cream. I really don't care about cream. I can appreciate why people like them and their point in history and blah, blah, blah. But I will say this, some of the guitar tones and guitar sounds are, you know, good on some of those mountain and crime records, or they're certainly loud, or they're certainly very sort of analog-y, tube amp, you know, whatever. And you would think that if you got in a band, in a a room with these guys, probably all fucked up. Now they were, I think, individually hilarious, nice, funny, pun-loving Clevelanders. Um, besides maybe uh, Jimmy Zero, he's pretty fucking crazy. But they they would have been, I think, probably pretty funny to be in a studio with. And you would have think that Felix would have been like, you know what, fuck it, let's just crank some of this and see what we can get away with. But it just sounds like on so much of it, yeah, that he just kind of, whoever ended up mixing it, because there's questions about who was sitting around when mixing, which happens all the time. Yeah. But yeah, you just wonder, like, what the fuck? Like, and the only thing I can figure is that, well, one, at that state, they probably weren't a lot of fun to be in the studio with, actually, because they were arguing and drugs and everything else, right? So there was probably some of that. Um, my opinion, when bands want to say, oh, man, the production, it sucked on the record. We hated it. It's like, you know, there's a word no in the English language. And you could have used that when the record was done. Um, the label either would have shelved it or maybe spent the extra whopping $1,000 to remix it or whatever, in one afternoon, if you really wanted to, you know, so I, th- I think there's some of that too. Like, I think when you listen to flamethrower love, part of it is like, should have been that one little beat quicker, you know, and that's up to the band. Sometimes be like, you don't listen to the fucking producer, but you know, who knows? I'm not going to judge them on what the hell happened in the studio at the time. I have no idea. I wasn't there, but um, it's kind of easy sometimes to blame the label, you know, yeah. but the fact is cheat himself. I've talked to the guy. He's a great guy. I love cheetah. You know, he's like, Eric, I was, checked out for half of that you know he was just like we had to get the record done we weren't getting along he was fucked up he admits it you know and he's like i care about it i want it to be a good record he always says he loves the artwork and all that you know the photo of the band and everything um and in fact i have not going off forever i tend to go on these side things but back in like the early 2000s there's a a quasi legit you know one of these pre-eq'd of the un-eq'd demos or whatever you know it's basically a, 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 it's the same record, it's, but they call it third generation nation. Um, I don't know what label it's even called here, but um, it's pretty good. Um, it, it is like Cheetah does a liner notes on the back and he, he says it's the, uh, the re-EQ'd, pre-EQ'd uh, versions and it's slightly different track listing too. And I would say it is a little bit stingier, a little bit, a little bit noisier, a little bit. Um, it's a cool thing if you can find it, this third generation nation record, the We Have Come For Your Children pre-mix. But it still just shows that, yeah, like a couple of songs that were just a little undercooked and weren't really ready yet. But um, I also think, and to shut up about the producer thing, and then we can go on with other questions or songs, but I remember back then, like, you know, that I think younger bands who they would have been considered one of the, you know, a green band um, were usually given like a list of names, you know, like yeah. here's some producers you can use, pick one. And they don't know half of them. And they recognize, oh, the guy from Mountain. Sure. You know, maybe it was something like that. You know, it, it, it might have just been as simple as that. And he was cheaper than Todd Rundgren or something, you know, like, right. you know, it, it could have just been that, you know. Yeah. Not that that's a good excuse, but they practically could have produced it on them, their own and it would have sounded better. But that's how major labels are. You know, they want some name on there, you know. 
I'm more interested. So I went down a wormhole uh, looking at uh, Papillardi. So interesting story here. So he was shot and killed by his wife in 83 uh, with a Derringer that he had given her as a gift just a few months prior uh, prior to that. Uh, she was she charged. a big Dead Boys fan? I'm I, maybe. That is not funny. Not funny. Cheetah probably fucked her. Ha ha! Sorry, I'm just going down some dark humor holes here. Ahead, uh, yeah. So uh, she was found guilty of uh, criminally negligent the guy from mountain? homicide. Well, that too. Oh but, God. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyways, I thought that was interesting. Wow. Well, I mean, I'm sure that I'm sure that he was probably a pretty wild guy on his own, you know, so maybe maybe they went out and had a beer with him one night and really thought he was kind of a fun guy. I mean, who knows? That's probably more when I see Cheetah, which is few and far between. But he plays New York once in a while. And I didn't get to see him the last time. But, um, you know, you you don't want to sit there and just you know, be fanboy hitting him with a hundred questions about something from 40 years ago that he's not going to remember because he was high at the time, you know? So I don't like to bother him too much about too much of that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's jump into the record. So as a reminder, our scoring is based on the number of songs on the record. Wayne, how many songs on this record? 10. Which means our top song is going to get 10 points. Next favorite song, nine points on Dan to the lowest of one. And since this is a punk record, our analysis of each of the songs are going to be longer than the length of any of the actual songs. Is that accurate? <laughs> sure, yes. Okay. Yes, Dan, that is a great description of uh, punk uh, critical writing. But anyway, go ahead. Sorry. Absolutely. All right, let's jump into it. Here's, uh, here's the top, our first song. Here's Third Generation Nation. What exactly is a third generation nation? Is that a dig at baby boomers or something? You know, I thought about I thought about that. I think it's supposed to refer to rock and roll generations. So like maybe Elvis and that thing in the fifties would be first. Beatles into this, what we think of as the sixties would be the second, which actually is what those guys grew up with. You know, they were all Yardbirds fans and stuff, you know. And then this, I think they're sort of saying that they're they're part of this third rock and roll generation. It's just my guess, you know, but. Yeah, that was the same thing I thought, mainly from the line about uh, I could play corporate rock. Yes. But I'd rather yeah, play right. rock. That's, that's yeah. what made me think of this, that also. <laughs> yeah, there are really fun lyrics all over this record. But anyway, before I forget, James Williamson was supposedly the guitarist of the Stooges. Well, second guitarist was originally some name that was thrown around as a producer and that probably would have been a better choice but yeah anyway I think would, so. would it have saved the band had 
they had like a punk guy at the helm who actually knew how to control the punks. Yeah, well, but that's the thing. I think that people forget that, like, and not that I was, you know, in 1978, I wasn't buying Dead Boys records yet. I was, I was, I believe, counting my third pube. But I, I just was like, you know, I, I feel like people forget that that first sort of wave of bands from like the Dolls and Dictators and like Patti Smith and that era, even into the end of the 70s, you know, the second television record and stuff these were major labels and these bands were signing to major labels. And I think in their heads, having just bought their favorite, you know, um, whatever, uh, Yardbirds album seven years earlier, six years earlier, you know, really, when you think about it now, suddenly they're in a band and they could be on a label. And I think they just, in their heads, they didn't have all those rules about punk rock and independent bands, and DIY and independent labels. They just, probably thought well we're we're the next bands right like we're those were the bands that were big then and now we're the next bands and they probably fully expected to if not play stadiums you know the ramones went out on tour with mountain remember that one <clears throat> or one of the first tours sire yeah. put them out was opening up for fucking mountain you know yeah. and so you know labels thought well this makes sense this is the next round of bands didn't turn out that way um everybody kept buying genesis and led zeppelin well into the fucking 90s which kind of drove me crazy but um but so i think when you when you look at you know what punk guy w was a major label going to invest their money into at that time i don't even know if there would have been maybe tommy Erderly, you know tommy ramon maybe maybe he would have been given money to produce the dead boys but probably not because he was still in the ramones at that point so um and you know i don't know and and so I, yeah, I don't know who, who could have been around. I guess James Williamson definitely probably would have been a better choice. Um, but, and that's another thing that I think is, is uh, what happens with these records as time goes on is, is that when they initially come out and their initial reputation for the 10 years after it came out, is like, oh yeah, the shitty second one. They were all fucked up. It didn't go anywhere. The label dropped them. Forget that one. Just go get Young, Loud, and Sunny. But as the years go on, that's all you have. So you can find the lost demos and the Johnny Thunder's heartbreakers. The LAMF record is notorious for this raw power. I can't tell you how many versions of raw power by the Stooges I have. And you end up usually that those kind of punk era. Oh, the not as very good later record, or there was something fucked up about its production. It ends up being something that you loved about it. Right. I mean, the tinny weird stinginess of raw power that Bowie did. Everybody complained about it at the time, but as the years go on, it's like, it's a fucking great record. Cause the songs are great and whatever and the first lamf i have a million different mixes of that album the johnny thunders album and you know you kind of end up going back to the one that you heard in the first place anyway yeah. so I, I think i think to sit there and and, and then i'll say this and shut up because i go on these fucking tangents but um the thing about this second dead boys album is i often think of it as people say it's kind of a failed nasty punk record from that era or a failed dead boys record and to me as time goes on the band was kind of falling apart, but Stiv was going more towards his, Stiv Bears was going towards his 60s kind of affinities. You know, he liked the choir from Cleveland and he liked stuff like that. Some of the, even the more melodic kind of 60s and some of the nugget stuff, you know? So it was the beginning of that. And in a way, I think of the second Dead Boys album as like maybe the nastiest power pop record that was ever done, you know? Because there's a lot of good hooks. It has that slightly cleaner not as distorted production, but it's still upbeat and it's still a little mean, but it's a lot of fun too. You know, it ends up being as the decades have gone on, ends up being like if somebody asked me one of the great power pop records, I'd 
probably go, you may as well listen to this album, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, it's just, that's how it's come out over the years. And, you know, and we don't have like the unmixed demos. As far as I know, there's never really been a lot of found demos of the second dead boys record that were remixed way crazier, you know? So I think it's kind of pointless to say, Oh, well it was failed or something. It's like, I don't know. There's a lot of great songs in the records. It kind of dies by the end of side two, but you know, so go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, I mean side <laughs> side A is solid. Um, I was just mm-hmm. I was just getting getting ready to get some scores on this. I, I did want to bring up the fact that this first song, the writing credits go to Stiv. We'll talk about all the writing right. credits because I think that 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 kind of tells a little bit of the picture of how disjointed sure. this, this this was because I feel like the first record there was more of a collaborative effort and for this one yeah. with the writing credits they're kind of all over the place so you, you yeah i mean despite his reputation i i like a lot of kim Fowley, but when a band gets to the point by the end of the 70s where the label's throwing a kim Fowley song at you yeah eh, you know <laughs> right right i do have to ask so the the stop and start at the ending of the song uh, where they you know do the third generate third gen- uh, oh is, yeah is that, is that punk i like it but i'm not sure how punk oh, yeah, i like it okay yeah i mean i you know i think that's a pretty standard taking the chorus and doing the like repeated kind of yeah. stutter thing at the end it's fine i didn't have a problem if i remember correctly and i might not be remembering correctly even though i just listened to it the other day that third generation nation album that i was just talking about the kind of re-eq'd thing of of this record um I believe it fades out differently. I believe it keeps going, but I could I could be forgetting. Oh, okay. Some of the songs have slightly longer fades and stuff on them. You know, when you get those kind of like, this was the original mix album or whatever. Some of it's got some of that. It might have a slightly different sense. So let's get some scores yep. from, from everybody for Third Generation Nation. So Wayne, your score? Um, I gave it a six. I liked, I, I thought it was a great choice for the first for the first song too. Come out with a big one, two, three, four, and then off they went. I like that. All right. Eric, your score? Yeah, I think it's a great, uh, I think it's a great first song too, but I had it as number eight, um, the third best song, because, excuse me, which we'll get to, but I just think I don't want to be no Catholic boy is the best song on the record, and for a lot of reasons, which we can get to when we get to it. But um, I love Third Generation Nation. I think it's a good song. (laughs) Yes, spoiler alert for Eric. Let me tell you how I judge this, because I was familiar with the first Dead Boys, but I was not terribly familiar with this record uh how i scored this was how how it got stuck in my head and this song got stuck in my head a lot um so i'm this is this is my top score just because of that makes sense moving on here's the next song this is i won't look back about the writing credits so the writing credits for this go to jimmy zero so if you're looking for some continuity between all the songs that uh, would probably 
probably be one of the reasons why there doesn't feel like there is this flow. I said earlier, I said earlier that Jimmy Zero is pretty fucking crazy. I met uh, Johnny Blitz, the drummer. He's pretty nuts in a good way. Jimmy Jimmy Zero is actually a super sweet, nice guy. Very nice. I've met him a few times. He lives back in Cleveland. He he, he leaned a little more towards um, you know sixties pop stuff was a big favor to his. And I think he also was probably the remaining one of the band at the time. If I remember this correctly, because I saw him at a showing of uh, Sid Bader's documentary just a couple of months ago here in New York. It's a good documentary. I'm blanking on the fucking name now, but it's called, it's a Sid Bader's documentary that just came out this summer. And, and, and Jimmy Zero was on the panel Q and A after it. He kind of seems to have this um, dichotomy where he was ready. He just wasn't a New York guy. He didn't want to be there anymore. Mainly, I think, because of the drug situation within the band. But also, he just wanted to get back to Cleveland. There may have been some other personal reasons I'm not knowing or remembering. But I think he kind of wanted... So he had a weird dichotomy of he kind of wanted to go back to Cleveland and didn't want to deal with the whole major label game anymore. And I don't really think he wanted to be touring the world nine months out of the year. Mm-hmm. At the same time, he was sort of the Mick Jones of the Dead Boys, where his licks and his riffs, he leaned towards the slightly poppier stuff and probably would have liked to have been a bit of a pop star and like see hits on the top 10, you know, like I think he would have liked to have seen that. He's kind of an old school Cleveland, you know, classic rock radio guy and, and just a nice guy that, you know, did want. So I think that's why that, that song I often kind of notice uh, with, I won't look back is, um, girls really like that song a lot, you know, <laughs> and, um, and girls like a lot of dead boy songs, but um, there's a kind of sort of, sort of uh, reflective kind of sweetness to it. And of course, Stiv's voice is great on it and it won't look back as usually like a defiant. So that sounds like a punk title, but at that point, and I, I feel like you can hear it in his voice. Like it's like no regrets kind of feeling, yeah. you know, and it's almost kind of, oddly weirdly tender plus it's kind of melodically it's a very nice one to, ah you talked about getting stuck in your head it's like oh back you know it's it's i don't know it's kind of nice in that way but it's just a great song and again really more of like a power pop song than like a punk song or whatever i just feel like there is uh there is some contrast in the lyrics where you know the the chorus is i won't look back but then he's talking that's about, all he's doing yeah that's all he's doing <laughs> yeah, right back. right right and, right, and, yeah. and, and yeah, it made funny. me think of the George Herbert uh, quote of living well is the best revenge, but yeah, is, yeah. <laughs> is living a life of a punk, is that living well? <laughs> um, depends. You know, I, I mean, I think, again, the assumption that, that if you think what we were talking earlier about just being inspired by the music end of it and the sense of humor and the way that punk was originally kind of a, uh, again, this is a cliche too, but the sort of middle finger to the over serious 30 guitar pedal stadium bands of the 1970s. And this is more about hanging out with your friends and be, and living a life that you want to live and not what you was prescribed by your parents or your school. Like I think that more in terms of punk and not kind of the caricature that we've come to, to know, you know, yeah. it's always the mosh pit and all that kind of stuff and the drugs. Um, and I think living well, if you can live through that original era of punk was really a rite of passage for the rock and roll genre. And if you could get through that era, I mean, there was a shit ton of drugs. They were 
slowly getting bad. You know, you hear a lot of the real older people go, well, the drugs are better in the early 70s, you know, but they were getting bad. AIDS was already coming about. By the end of the 70s, I'm sure the dead boys knew some people that were walking around looking sick and they didn't know what was going on. I mean, you know, there were people in their scene when the drummer, when, when Johnny Blitz was jumped and stabbed, you know, there were serious things going on right around then that if you could live through that and you still want to play music and not just go, Oh, fuck this. I'm just going to go work in a shoe store. You know, if you, if you, if you can do that, then yeah, I would say that's, that's living well is a, a pretty decent revenge. If you're still having fun, you know, there you go. Wayne, what'd you got on this? Oh yeah. I, it had a very New York doll, doll sound. And I definitely uh, uh, can hear that there is that kind of that sixties, almost not, like girl group that there's a little bit of mm-hmm. yeah. harmony in here and it's got a real big hook. It, and uh, I noticed that there's an, the other Jimmy zero. He's, he was a, ta- he was a talented songwriter. Cause one of For sure. the really good songs on here too, that he wrote later, but I did see that there was such a di- different people writing songs and it was, and there and different sounds happening, um, which I had heard that Sire wanted to try to be more mainstream, which in some instances, I think that worked and, and sometimes it didn't. But on this one, I, I, I re- it was all about the music. That that second guitar almost has a piano sound to it that gave it that yeah, kind totally, of New York yeah, dolls, yeah. that New York yeah. dolls feel. Yeah, and also, yeah, definitely those harmonies. That was, that was listening to it again this week, it was like, there's definitely more backup harmonies here and there. And I'm almost trying to think, wow, who's singing that? I guess Jimmy Zero did that. You know, like, I never really, really thought that hard about that before. And it was like, yeah, I noticed that there's almost like doo wop stuff in there. And you forget. I always tell the story of, if you ever read um, I Slept with Joey Ramone, Joey's brother, uh, Mickey Lee, there's a story early on, just a simple one about lying in bed. He, he shared a room with Joey and they lived in Queens and lying in bed, they could hear the guys down the street, Italian guys who were singing doo-wop. And, it rem- and you remember, you're reminded that like, you know, you think of punk as the 70s and 80s thing, or even maybe 90s. You, you feel, oh yeah, like these guys were actually alive when doo-wop was just happening. You know, like this is in their memories. Maybe they were little kids, but this is in their heads. You know, they knew this stuff. They grew up on this stuff. It wasn't like when my group of the bands that I write about in my book, We Never Learn. Anyway, in um, plug, when, when the books that I, the bands that I played with and ran around with in the 90s, we were sort of learning about that stuff through these previous punk bands. You know what I mean? So we were already coming through another piece of glass or whatever the, 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 the metaphor I'm looking for is, a prism, that we were seeing that music. And then maybe we found out about Rockabilly and 60s Garage and all that. But these guys were actually a lot. That was the music they grew up with. So they didn't, it wasn't completely, fuck you, we hate everything old. When you, when you read Cheetah Chrome's biography, I mean, he, he likes Led Zeppelin and Alice Cooper. You know, he likes, he likes very big bands. You know, and but they know their shit. You know, the Dead Boys. That's what's so funny about the Dead Boys is like they were presented as these kind of street urchins who just the only thing they care about is drugs or something. They all were big music fans. They really knew their music. You know, it was just and growing up in Cleveland, every band I ever knew, they they know their music left and fucking right. You know, it's just in there. You know, that's what I think was punk too. I don't. Um, one time, Matt, our bass player, was talking to the singer of The Offspring, and he was calling us wondering if we wanted maybe i shouldn't tell the story but what the fuck he was wondering uh <laughs> he wanted to maybe do a record with us and matt's like well, you know i'll get this guy listen we talked for a little while and matt said that at one point um rockabilly and the blues came up and the singer offspring said oh well rockabilly and the blues have nothing to do with punk and matt was like okay our conversation's over you know it was like 
he he's like i knew right then like this is going nowhere and we're probably not going to do a record with this guy but that's that whole sort of california skate punk thing like music started with the germs you know and i love the germs but even the germs knew new music you know so um i think the dead boys a song what you're just saying wayne about the the harmonies and everything it may have been that it probably that the label is like we got to start selling record toys you know but um and one way to do that is to pull the guitars back and put some harmonies in there you know but they know about that stuff too and they liked a lot of that music so anyway i have one more one more question before we jump into scores so what is he yelling at the end of the song i i looked at the lyrics on the old interwebs and and supposedly the lyric is because revenge is sweet but i don't i don't think that's accurate at all yeah i don't really know i uh, i'd have to completely incoherent yeah yeah i don't know i don't know Maybe we should. You should get. You know, you should get Cheetah Chrome on your show. Just drill him about everything. There you go. Dead Boys song. And again, he'll be like, I. I don't remember. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, let's get some scores. So, Eric, your score. Mine was uh, nine. I thought that was about the second best re- song overall as a song, and as where it lays in the record. Although I think it would have helped to put that at the end, right before "Ain't It Fun." Maybe even right after is the last song. Um, not to bury it because it's such a great song. But it, I think it would have made a really nice, like, last or second last song. But it's one of the best songs. There's nothing wrong with putting it at the top of the record either. It's nice to hear somebody else talk about sequencing because I, <laughs> I bring that up a lot on these episodes. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my God. There's so much, so many records that you notice, like, why did you put that song there? You know, but, um, yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Wayne, what's your score? I gave it a seven. I agree. This is uh, one of the, the, the better songs on here. Really well written song which I found myself saying about a lot of these songs and I give it a nine. So I like it. I like there you it. go. Yeah. It gets stuck in my head as well. All right. Mm-hmm. Moving on. Here's the next song. This is, I don't want to be no Catholic boy. you love the song oh am i supposed to say my score yet or am we, we wait for this well score, you right? already you so, already spoiler alerted i think i already did yeah, right yeah, yeah. yeah you already spoiler alerted. it's my whether it's the best song in the album or not i don't know but it's overall for me it's probably it's my favorite i guess and i think it's one of the best dead boy songs i think that again i you know i hate to be the cleveland fucking home guy but but it's so very cleveland i i mean everybody i grew up with was catholic pretty much you know and if they weren't they were lapsed catholic or you know um and it's it just reminds me of just that feeling when you know growing up in cleveland like i don't want to be and we all know what catholic means as a general term too but i think you know obviously with the lyrics he really means religion and so that's a big deal with me too but um but uh 
I just think it's a great song. I love how he sings on it. It's definitely a snottiest vocal on the whole record. I love how, how he goes like, um, you want to be no kidly, boo. You know, it's like he had that like pinched tongue up on the top of his mouth. Like he's, he's, he's so, so pissed. He can't even move his fucking tongue. He's so angry. But, um, and I love that. And just, um, you know, the, the chanting, everybody going, hey, man, you know, it's just like, it's just a really fun song. The most, I guess, if you had to say, it's sort of the most punk song on the whole record. Um, songwriting stands up. Again, yeah, you know, the mix and things about it. I don't know, you know, maybe it could be a hair faster, but but I just liked it a lot. And again, for me, it's a lot to do with just growing up in Cleveland and thinking about how probably bored and fucked he was. I'm going to church all the time in Youngstown, Ohio which made downtown Cleveland look like Paris in the thirties, you know, but anyway. <laughs> and, and for those of you who do look at lyrics, so the, uh, Dominus Vobiscum, that is Latin for <laughs> Lord, Lord be with you. Yeah. And actually he probably was one of the, not third generation, but un, un, umpteenth generations that probably still might've learned some Latin when he was in school. Like my mom who was born in 33. She, all their masses were in completely in Latin, right? And I think Stiv probably was one of the last generations where he had some Latin masses and crap like that. You know, besides being funny, because Stiv is hilarious and his lyrics are hilarious, and and so it's funny to throw some Latin in there. But um, yeah. Anyway, just thought I'd I, say that. Yeah, and I don't think we brought it up. So the writing credit is to Stiv on this one. Um, yeah. Now I do sure. I <laughs> that the background vocals are Joey Ramone and Dee Dee Ramone. Is that, is that accurate or am I just reading stuff on the internet? I've heard that before. So I don't remember, I guess I could have looked that up before I talked to you, but I believe that is true. Okay. They may have even been down on tour in Florida around that time, but I'm, I'm relying on third generation synapses in my head somewhere. So I don't know. <laughs> All right, Wayne, what do you got on, uh, Catholic boy. Oh, I, I love this song and it's, it's, it's textbook. I mean, it's right out of the mm -hmm. uh, punk rock one oh one. but it's so clever and angry. And I think it's great that he throws in Latin. Um, I love the line. Uh, I just want to beat my meat in the street. He's just, yeah, it's just, it's, he's perfect. And like say, Steve Bader's that my first introduction to him was I saw the video for method to my madness by Lords of the new church. Mm -hmm. And, it's funny is he's so anti rock star, but yet there's this swagger in him that you just, you just can't deny. He, I mean, he looks older than he is. He's not conventionally handsome, but there's, doesn't matter what he does. He just, he's just got this swagger about him. And the, and this is just added right up there with the best stuff he's done. Can I tell a quick one really quick? The only, my only run in ever with Stib was, one of the earliest shows I saw was a Lords of New Church show, and it was at this theater, the Fantasy Theater, where I sang with Death of Samantha about a year ago. Um, I was walking down the street where you can see the alley in the back of the club where you, they can kind of load in equipment. And I see it's dark already. You know, we're going in to see Lords of New Church. We were there early. I mean, the opening band wasn't even on yet or whatever. And I see this guy pissing. And I'm looking, because down the alley a little bit, I'm like, fuck, that's Stiv Bader's. And I go, hey, Stiv, how's it going, man? Have a great show. And while he's holding it, he switches to the other hand and he waves like, Hey man, yeah, see you in there. <laughs> it was just <laughs> perfect. I don't ever want to have met him any other way. I'm glad it didn't turn into a conversation. I was just very happy with that. So that's the only time I met Stiv. And um, I also, when he passed away 
was that 91, right? He, um, one of my first writing, yeah, 90, one of my first writing assignments was for the Cleveland Sea Magazine was they were having a memorial that Cheetah put together for him at this club that's no longer there in Cleveland. And um, they were putting a memorial together and they asked me to go kind of review it or cover it or whatever. I, I went and it was just amazing. And there was, you can find them on YouTube. Um, there were three people who could not make it to the memorial. John Waters, Iggy Pop, and Lydia Lunch. And they each sent VHS greetings, like memorials, talking about Stiv. And everybody, they turned down the lights and they pulled the screen down and they showed the three videos. You should look them up on YouTube. Just put in like Stiv Bader's John Waters or Stiv Bader's Memorial Iggy okay. Pop or Lydia Lunch. You'll find them. They're amazing. And amazing. And um, the Iggy Pop one, he starts like tearing up and it's incredible. But the Lydia Lunch one, she's standing there talking about giving them a blowjob or something. And there's Stiv's parents, nice little <laughs> Polish parents in their fi- Sunday finery with che- drunken cheetah with his arms around them crying and laughing at Lydia, Lydia Lunch talking about blowing him. It's just one of the greatest little moments I've ever experienced in my life. But anyway, it was great. All right. So we already know Eric's score. Wayne, your score? Nine. It was my second favorite. All right. And I'm giving it a seven. So that moves us on to Flamethrower. a new wavy thing going i mean like this is 1978 so that's it's before it really happened but there was a they just it has and i think punk rock drummers are the best drummers they have they usually have such a small kit and yet they still just create so much sound at such a high rate of speed Uh, i think they're very underappreciated no, I was just saying he was a particularly monstrous and he looked like a, like a short linebacker. I mean, he was just, his arms were huge. And when you see those clips of them playing at CBGB's, he just, he's just a monster drummer. He was really good. I think one of the things I noticed is I think that Cheetah Chrome was very underappreciated. This isn't your standard oh, yeah. jo- Johnny Ramone bar chords, all downstrokes. This is, I mean, there's like little lead bursts and guitar solos even. It's super simple. It's one verse and a kind of a chorus and they just go over and over again. But it, for me, it just, uh, this was one that every time it came up, I love that, that in the beginning, it has this real new wavy sound and, and, I just, and the drumming is particularly, I thought the, the drumming is dynamite. phenomenal. Yeah. Um, writing credits to Stiv and Jimmy zero. My question for this is, what exactly is a flamethrower, Love? Is that like code for venereal disease? <laughs> well, you know disease? what I thought? Well, yeah, maybe, yeah, probably. But what I thought about that song is, I have it somewhere in the middle of a pack. We'll give, we'll give the, the grades. But if it, it sounds like something that could have been on the first album, but it kind of sounds like 
you know, when a band does a second album and they're like, oh, it sounds like they just rewrote songs from the first album. It kind of sounds like something that's like, okay, this is, it, it is a little new wavy, but it's also kind of like from the title to the riff and stuff, it's a little bit like, okay, this is like a Dead Boys song, you know? Um, but that's a minor quibble because I think it's a really fun song. I think I said earlier that it probably could have stood to be a tiny bit faster and probably would have been if it was on the first album. And it's definitely one that would have benefited from a more sympathetically nasty producer, you know, because you're right. Cheetah's guitar playing is fucking awesome. And having a little more of that just really slammed through some more and just having everything be a little tiny bit faster and louder. I could say that about every one of my favorite songs of all time, but um, for how I look at music, but it's just that it, I really like the song a lot. I just think it also kind of, it just narrowly misses like, you know, how great something like Sonic Reducer or, you know, what love is or something, you know, it just narrowly misses that kind of stuff on the first album. Yep. All right. Let's get some scores. So Wayne, I gave it an eight. And then Eric. Six. Although again, I mean, as a song, I love it. It's an eight or nine, but it's, if we're ranking them sort of first to last, it's, and we're going backwards. Yes. Number six. Yep. And it's a five for me. Which brings us to last song on side A. This is Son of Sam. one of zero songs uh longest song on the record at uh where is it um let me just double check yes it five is 11 yeah five five eleven did they get any flack for having a, a song about the son of sam that, that was my feeling about the song like again if you if you just picked up this record a couple weeks ago and didn't know too much about the dead boys it would almost you know it would just be like, oh, it's a song about a serial killer or something, if you even knew that. But um, you know, when you think about when this came out and there's gunshots and dogs barking and girls screaming, yeah. I mean, probably the gunshots are louder than anything else in the mix. I mean, it for as much as earlier I said this is more like one of the great, nastiest power pop records, this song is actually kind of fucked up. Like, it's, it's, a, it's a weird song, and it, it is one of the last hints at the kind of genuine viciousness and real you know the dead boys sometimes i they, they got they got um sometimes uh pilloried if that's where back in the day as almost like a cartoon version of the stooges or something or some kind of like extreme version of a punk band or something but they really were in a lot of ways i mean johnny blitz really was a tough hard ass and and cheetah really did get in knockdown fights and did a shit ton of drinking and drugging and they were genuine real street kids you know and 
And I think this is this is a song on this record that like you can sort of brush it off because yeah, the production again could have been a little louder here or there. Yeah. It kind of almost sounds like a weird novelty song in a weird way. Um, it almost sounds like something Kim Foley would have produced, you know. But because um, it's got that kind of LA street, you know, whatever thing to it. But it really is kind of a fucked up song. I think they got a little shit for it, but since the record probably only sold about 700 copies, I don't think they got too much shit. You know, that's the thing in America. Like, you know, the the the, um, the, the Tipper Gores of the world weren't upset about hardcore records for the most part. She was upset about metal records that were selling a lot. You know, yeah. she wasn't out there talking about the Crucifix. You know, she was talking about Iron Maiden records or whatever because they Jesus sold a lot. Priest. You know, right? You know, yeah. so so. I, you know, I don't think the Dead Boys got too much grease, um, but, you know, to talk about that in so blatant a manner and Steve kind of taking on the character, I'm Son of Sam, I mean, it's definitely kind of a fucked up song, which is great. I think it's awesome. I, I like this song. <laughs> are, are, they, are, they, are they glorifying him a bit or am I just kind of misconstruing no, Steve's delivery of it? I don't know. I thought that I, yeah, I agree. This is dark and, and creepy and fucked up. And, and but I, I think it's also this is a complex, well-written song that he I mean, he from a serial. This is like one of the first tabloid serial killers. And he had just been caught like before. Yeah, they, exactly. They started yeah. making this record. So this is a current event that he, you know, Jimmy Zero just wrote a song, put himself and used facts from you know from the the crime into this song mm-hmm. that yeah it's absolutely uh, and Stiv Stiv Bader's is I, I, you could have convinced me he was the son of Sam the way he sings it he's mm-hmm. he's totally. all in yeah he yeah and there was you know there were certainly parts like that about Stiv but for the most part everyone said he was like the nicest sweetest funniest guy you know your classic like he's crazy on stage but you'd never know it off you know but he had you know his moments and. I'm sure he saw shit on the streets of Youngstown growing up, but it's funny also, you know, earlier you mentioned Jimmy Zero and the, and the songwriting on the record that I think is kind of undervalued. And you look at Jimmy Zero on one side going from, I won't look back to that song. And you wonder if they could have held it together, what kind of crazy third record they could have had, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's that kind of thing to think about too, which is kind of neat. But anyway, Right, Who am I kidding? It probably would have sucked. Good thing they broke up. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> All right, let's get some scores. So, Wayne? I gave it a five, but I did really with, I did enjoy it. Same with me. I think it's one of the more interesting songs for sure, but it's right in the middle of the pack. Great end of first side song, I will say that as far as track listening. Yeah, and I gave it a two. Um, I don't know. There was just something about some of the the sound effects and maybe I was getting used to these two and a half minute songs and now you're going to give me a five minute song. I just, yeah. Yeah. I think that's why they stuck it at the end of the side too. Yeah. You know, that's kind of a standard, like, ah, oh, the songs get a little long, let's stick at the end of the side. But it does definitely have a, when you were mentioning, when you were mentioning the timing of it, there's a little bit of a novelty to it, which is sort of weird, you know, because it's like writing a song about like Billy Carter or something, you know, at that time, you know, it should be like a goofy song about drinking Billy beer, you know, but, but this is about, you know, a current event that was, you know, people getting fucking murdered, you know? So like um, a, there's like a too soon kind of a, almost to it. And punk taught us to make fun of literally fucking everything, but um, including murders out in the streets by son of Sam. So anyway. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's flip the record over. So this is uh, tell me and yep, this is a Rolling Stone song.
get get us started on this because I know that you are the resident Rolling Stones fan on the podcast. So, well, well, and I did not realize this until I was actually looking at the lyrics when I was doing my scores because something about this never felt right. It's not, and I, it's not that I don't like it, and I think the harmonies actually give it this uh, a different effect, but it just never it never felt right. It never seemed to to belong here. And then when I saw that it was a, a more obscure Rolling Stones song, I, I, it, it all made sense then. Well, it's not so much an obscure song. So this is their, this was their debut single. Uh, this was their first top forty song in the states. But I guess the obscure comes from it's from nineteen sixty four. So it kind of gets lost. In all of the other great songs that the Rolling yeah, Stones, Rolling Stones, did. like there's pre-satisfaction. Yeah. I don't know that. I don't know if not as many people are as familiar with that. And I can't tell if this. So this is really a sped up version. So I looked at these side by side. So the Dead Boys version clocks in at two minutes thirty eight seconds. Stones version is four minutes and five seconds. So I can't tell if the sped up version is supposed to be a tribute to the Stones or is that like a punk sneer. That's so song. great. It's like you're trimming the fat on a four minute song. Awesome. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, no, I, I, uh, yeah, if you think about it, that song was 14 years old when the dead boys did it. Yeah. 14 is 2005. Do you know what I mean? Like when you think about it in terms of, you know, how much happened to music between 1964 and 1978, Amazing. we were already through the entire arc of rock and roll into making fun of it, into redoing it. You know what I mean? Like, and I think to me, that's why, and this is fanboy record geek stuff. Like if you, again, if you bought this record last week and didn't know dead boys at all. And if you happen to know that it was a stones cover, you'd probably be like, Oh, okay. They did a stones cover. But um, the geek end of it to me was the amazing thinking. Like they were reviving would have been a, what would have been. Yes almost considered a silly early stone song, like not as serious and cool as, as, you know, um, heartbreaker or whatever, you know what I mean? Like it, it's not one of those cool later druggy stone song. It's one of those fun sort of early, they were wearing suits and here the dead boys did that instead of doing, they could have done shattered, which actually would have been really cool. But, um, but it, to me, it's just interesting. They picked that. It also points to what I was saying earlier that Stiv already in his mind, I think Stiv was thinking, of putting a suit coat on and a skinny tie. And when he moved to LA and was making, he covered um, it's cold outside, you know, like he, he really loved those early and mid sixties, three minute, you know, early garage pop songs. He loved that stuff. And I feel like his vocal in that, excuse me, is really fun. And I think he, he liked, he was probably really happy to do it. I'm sure the whole band probably was. I'm sure they were all Stones fans. Um, probably took them five minutes to figure out how to cover it. And you're saying about the harmonies. I felt like the, by the end, it almost starts to sound like a doo-wop song. You know, they're doing those background kind of Dion runaway kind of like doo-wop-y type harmonies. And it's really fun. It's like they do, in that one little cover, they do, they do, you know, everything from doo-wop to 60s garage to a slightly punky thing because it's kind of fast. They put it at the top of side two, which I think is a good idea for a cover. You know, you're not bearing it because it's going to be, people might like it because it's a stone song, but it's definitely not, you know, the best song on the record by any means. It's not the best cover the Dead Boys probably ever did. But 
I don't think, I think it works within this record. And especially again, if you think of it as almost more of a power pop record as the years go on, I think it works, it works fine in that context, but you know, it's a, it's a pretty standard, like fast punk cover, but again, it was in 1978. So there weren't a lot of fast punk covers of 60 songs out just yet. You know? Right. All right. So let's get along with it. Winded way of saying it's a pretty good song. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get some scores. So I gave it a four, Eric. Tell me I gave a four also. Yeah. And then Wayne, I gave it a one. It's not. It wasn't that I didn't like it. It just didn't. It just didn't feel or it just didn't fit for me. But I, I, I agree. I the doo-wop part and the and the harmonies in it. It was a lot of fun. But but had they more songs? Had they whipped up a few more originals? This probably would have been a B-side or something. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Agreed. All right. Next song is Big City. Fowley earlier so this is a Kim Fowley song uh, if you're not familiar with who Kim Fowley is yeah he's mostly known for his involvement with the runaways uh, I saw that this song was also part of a band called Venus and the Razorblades is yeah that was another Kim which, Fowley project which yeah. one came first was it this song or uh, Venus? Venus and the Razorblades but Kim Folly tended to throw songs around a lot to people and just see if he, especially at that point in his career, okay. if he could just get a hit somewhere somehow. He started as a novelty guy. He, I believe, if I have my story correct, um, he was basically living on the street in L.A. And he wrote, uh, he wrote, um, oh, God, was it Ahab the Arab? Yeah, that one. And, and, and another novelty. So he had these hit couple of not full-on novelty songs in the early 60s but then yeah he ended up working with a bunch of bands and writing things and i love his records but they're all extremely weird um uh people have their problems with him and you can watch that runaways movie which isn't as bad as people say um to see how michael shannon played him really great but anyway um so yeah I, my thing about about that song um i know cheetah who in the liner notes of that third generation nation album when i was talking about that you know, the re-EQ'd version of, of, of um, We've Come For Your Children. Cheetah literally calls it the most disappointing second album in history. He says this about his own, <laughs> his own record. But, um, and he especially hates Big City. Um, he says he still hates it. He still thinks it sucks. I, um, here's, this is goofy, but I think it's sort of proto hair metal. You know, to me, it sounds mm-hmm. like, like it sounds like one of Kim Folly's many L.A., sort of cheesy but he was into that he was into what he thought a teenager would think is cool you know like literally lyrics like i'm gonna take my fast convertible and pick up a lady you know like what that's not a kid probably line maybe somewhere but you know he wrote stuff like that because he thought that's what the kids will like that's kids they like slightly sleazy sexy but easy to understand shit like that you know very la kind of like and big cities like that ain't, ain't so pretty you know just kind of bad rhymes but it's kind of funny and the venus and the razorblades version is kind of weird too it's definitely not the best song on this record no. 
I think. But and she hates it, and I completely understand why. I think it was probably a late in the game we got to fill out this album. Um, but it probably sounded vaguely like, well, I don't know, maybe this could, I mean, Hot Child in the City was a big hit, you know what I mean? So, um, this isn't that far from Hot Child in the City. Hot Child in the City is a way better song, but, but, um, you know what I mean by that kind of, this sounds a little bit like when you're getting into that eighties kind of, you know, songs about living on the streets in the city, you know, you know what I mean? Like that kind of big hair sleaziness kind of thing. Yeah. That's about the best I could say about that song. It sounds like since you've you keep bringing up Nick Gilder, it sounds like the next time we have you on, Eric, Sorry. we're we're gonna go we're gonna go uh, all Nick Gilder and and do a Nick Gilder record. It's only lately I, I already always knew Hot Island City and I knew a few other songs, but I was working at this record store and somebody had sold back like his first three records and the, the first one especially, um, you know who you are is awesome but whatever that's a record for another day we're talking about the much better dead boys <laughs> yes. so so the last notes that i have on here is this doesn't feel like a punk rock song and if that's the case then i prefer big city nights by the scorpions <laughs> yeah. Yeah. so there you go i probably would too yeah. yeah that's that's my little jab wayne did you get to say anything there? it was it felt a little heavier and like you say not kind of trying to get a more mainstream kind of a rock sound. But I initially liked it more. And as I listened to it, it started to drop down because you start to hear that the big city ain't so pretty. And it's, and the whole thing's very, it starts to get real cliche. And it started to plummet at the more with the more listens. It didn't, it didn't hold up, but I initially liked it because the, because it's kind of, it's got a heavier, more mainstream type of sound that that doesn't seem mm-hmm. to fit right either yeah but again the production sounds like they gave up on it you know like like you know they kind of it's mainstream enough let's move on you know like they they could have probably tweaked things here and there and added another guitar or something if they really wanted to go for kind of a bigger rock sound or something and it, it just sounds really undercooked to me and even as that kind of song and i like kim Fowley. i like his, a lot of his really weird songs but but it just it really feels to me like one of those that they pulled in at the last minute and you know, I think Folly was already living in Florida at that point too. So who knows? Maybe Kim Folly ran in there with a tape of it or something. You know, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get some scores. This is my least favorite. If you couldn't tell by my snide remarks, uh, Eric, your score. Also least favorite. You know, it's still it's still okay, and I love the Dead Boys, but yeah, it's probably my least favorite on that record. And then Wayne. I gave it a three. It was a battle between this and the next song for my second least favorite. Cause like I said, tell me something about the Rolling Stones cover just didn't sit right. Yeah. But this one was, yeah. was right down there. All right. Next song is calling on you. Again, I, I went back to the writing credits. Um, so the writing credits for this is Stiv, Cheetah, and Zero. And if you look at the writing credits for the first album, which I think we all agree is great, 
and nearly all of the songs on the first record are credited to these three band members. So because of that, I figured, oh, this is going to be my top score, and it's not. So <laughs> I, I feel like this is this is another one of those songs that they just kind of put in the middle of the 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 record or uh, the middle of the backside because it's just it's I don't know it's just not a super memorable song and I didn't particularly think that this was that special so what do you guys have on this yeah I thought you know what uh, it wasn't remarkable at all I mean it, it kind of it was once again kind of prototype punk rock and in fact the guitar and the drumming sounds a little bit more like something you would have heard on, you know, any, uh, any other punk rock record. I mean, they, this was the least exciting guitar wise until towards the end when he starts to do a couple of these kind of like almost Chuck Berry 50 style guitar solos, but they couldn't save it. Yeah. I mean, and saying not exciting about the dead boys. I mean, that's definitely one thing they always were, whatever you thought of them. Um, certainly live, they were very exciting and they were electric people. They all moved on stage a lot. Their songs always have some kind of stingy guitar bit or something, but this is definitely where you're getting into like the dregs of the second, the end of the second side kind of of an album, you know? And if you notice the beginning of calling on you kind of sounds like the beginning of won't look back and the beginning of big city kind of sounds like the beginning of son of Sam. So not only are they kind of like running out of originals, but they're they're almost using the like the same arrangements and stuff like it it just it just sounds like again this song sounds like okay we we did not have you, you want to go to an album with about at least 18 songs of your own to pick from and a couple covers if you're lucky you know and this sounds like they had about seven songs and then probably maybe they came up with this one in the studio maybe i don't know um it's fine i don't hate it but it's you're definitely getting to be like okay, you know, this album's starting to peter out a little bit, you know? Well, I wonder, just because of looking at the writing credits, I wonder if this was a leftover from the first album that they didn't think was good. Oh, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, maybe. Yeah. That could be. All right, let's get some scores. So I gave this a three. And then Wayne? A two. And then Eric? I gave it a three listening again, again and again yesterday. I, I might've even gone lower with it, but I, but I gave it, the, I gave it a three just cause I, I guess, I don't know. It's anyway, I gave it a three. <laughs> All, right. All right. Uh, second to last song. This is dead and alive. Uh, most of my scores are based off of what got stuck in my head. This one got stuck in my head. It's it's a quick song. Uh, so this is the shortest song on the record at a minute and 49. And uh, I have no idea what this song is about, but again, it's catchy. And who doesn't, who doesn't love a song that includes the phrase chump change in the lyrics? <laughs> I, I love that song. I, love, I like songs. Yeah, I think it's like a, 
even the title, it's a, it's a really good title in a way. It's a very good punk title, like Dead and Alive. You know, that's the right. old, like, ah, oh, the punk singer with the dead, evil eyes. But in that, it even is a little bit generic, you know. And then the riff is fine. It's good. Um, but it's it's just, you know, it, it, it's not it's just not one of their better songs. Again, I could switch that with Calling on You back and forth. I mean, they're, they're both, again, you're getting towards the end of the record. Um, you know, it, it just sounded it, it, the shortest song, as you mentioned, again, maybe, maybe that was made up a couple weeks before the, you know, the last practice before they recorded or something, it, it, you know, it sounds a little bit like that. His, his lyrics, which you usually always have a few good twists in them here and there are just kind of okay on that song. And, and his vocals, okay. And I think his lead, lead vocals, okay. I do but like it just doesn't really. Yeah. Yeah. And it makes it probably better than calling on you, but I'll stick with my originalist. <laughs> there you go. Again, I'm looking at it from the catchy standpoint. Wayne, you got anything yeah. on this one? I, you know, I gave it some points because it was dead and alive. I think everybody goes dead or alive. Yes. And I thought the lyrics right. were pretty gritty, kind of a street life, even like references to hustling and stuff. So it kind of. Yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. That's true. So I gave it some extra points for that. But yeah, it 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 came in. It's kind of they're starting. They're starting to lose gas. It feels a little bit like, again, it feels like they're doing a Dead Boy song. Do you know what I mean? Like if they're already, by the end of their second album, they're already starting to imitate themselves a little bit. You know, which if you're the Ramones, that's great. You should do it till the day you die. But most bands have to start to try to make some twists or something, you know. There there you go. All right, let's get some scores. So, Eric? Oh, yeah. Dead in the Life for me was number two. Okay. And then Wayne? Uh, for me, it was a four. And uh, I gave it the highest of all of us. I gave it a six. Again, just because <laughs> it was catchy and got stuck in my brain. So, Yeah, it is kind of, yeah. Yeah. All right. Last song. Let's wrap this up. This is Ain't It Fun. about uh peter lochner and and so this the the credits here go to peter and cheetah for writing credits yeah i mean i mean it it's we'll talk about the grades but but to me i mean it's it made sense that they did this um i think it's a great last song on this album it kind of saves that second side um although you could argue that maybe they shouldn't have buried it there but it's just you know um at the same time, it's always again. This comes from a geek Cleveland record collector guy. Like it's gonna pale in comparison a little bit to the original Rock of the Tombs demo, which in 1978 no one would have heard, um, and really nobody heard until about 1991. So I can't compare them in that way. So that's just me being like Cleveland record guy. But um, as a song, I think they did a great version. 
can go back and forth on the usual production things we've been saying the whole time, but I think it's a great version. It is a great song. It is a, I mean, if there can be a punk ballad, um, which there can be, uh, it is one of the greatest. Um, it has been covered by a few people. I know Guns N' Roses, but somebody else covered maybe Wilco or something. I don't know. Um, but it, it's, I think it's just a great song and it made sense that they did it. I think a, only slightly younger Stiv probably stood there watching Rocket from the Tombs doing it, wishing he could sing it. When he got a chance, I think he got a great vocal. And it's, it, I may be putting a lot on this because I am from Cleveland and I've, I kind of, you know, uh, I know how much the, the song means to Cheetah and everything, but I really feel it drips a little more with emotion than almost any other song in the record. It means a lot. It, it it didn't go too long. It very easily could have gone like epic rock ballad style and dragged on for another two minutes. So I'm glad they didn't do that. So overall, I think it was a really wise choice. Again, they were probably running out of songs. Um, so they needed one, but I think it's a great version. And it's the one that be, that actually kept Peter Lochner's name floating out there somewhere amongst people. And for that, I think it's, it's worth it. So I, I like the song. Yeah, and Wayne, um, you probably already had recognized it because you're a GNR fan. When I went through this record for the first time, I'm like, man, I swear I've heard this song before. So, you know, to your point, Eric, yeah, this was on the 1993 GNR record called The Spaghetti Incident. Which yeah, was the covers their, record. Their yeah. covers record, which um, since we're talking, this whole episode is about one of the um, least favorite follow-up records of all time. Uh, I would say that <laughs> Spaghetti Incident would fall into that category as well, right? Right, Wayne? Yeah. I think the one of the best things about the Spaghetti Incident was that it it made me go back and uh, listen to, the, you know, discover the UK subs and Dead Boys again yeah. and uh, break out, you know, more stuff by Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers and, you know, pull out my old misfit you know everything i had on the misfits and that yeah. was the best thing about it was it it made me what about the charles manson to, song i you know axel rose is just crazy i don't you know he's he's not even believable crazy anymore and i was so i had a familiarity with this song already which was great but it makes total sense that peter lochner wrote this song because it is this is an extremely well-written song but i i think that Axel picked this was maybe young Axel, but he had ran out of rock and roll rebel by the time he did this. Mm -hmm. Stiv Bader's has no, this right. cruel sarcasm in his voice when he does the, the verse parts and then just this raw visceral, you know, anger when he goes into what I guess would kind of be considered the chorus about the spitting in the face and the break punching the, you know, the glass yeah. That he just he just delivers an unbelievable performance vocally on a on an a un, incredibly well written song, and it's almost like maybe the band knew it's easy to say these kind of things when you look back on records, but like it's all like a coda, you know, it's like the end of a they they might have known that things were going to wrap up, you know, and it's it's just again this is probably partially like a Cleveland guy talking to me, but. It's just perfect for that. You know, it just, it, it harkens back to Peter Lochner dying, who really, Stiv has said, he says in the liner notes of the box set, the Peter Lochner box set, 
he says that like Peter really inspired him and told him, you know, if said what I'm not quoting it exactly, but he said, whenever I thought, what am I doing? This is stupid. I don't know if I should do this. And Lockham was like, no, what you're doing is great. You keep doing what you want to do. You know, he was very instrumental for all those guys. I mean, I'm sure he wasn't a perfect saint, whatever, but I'm just saying he was instrumental in bridging the kind of classicist stuff that rock was turning into at the end of the sixties into like, what do we do next? You know, in this dead fucking town where we can basically do anything we want because nobody's going to care. And he bridged that and really hung out with all these musicians and got to know them and partied with them and was so inspiring. So for the dead boys to bring that one out again and, you know, I could see as a band, I, you know, you might be sitting in the room going, Hey, you know, we covered a couple of his songs on our first album. I don't know that we need to use another one of his songs. And the fact that they did it and rescued it from just oblivion, you know, really means a lot, I think. And I don't mean to, I don't mean to make this too great. I mean, it's not the greatest song of all time, but it's, it's up there as far as like sort of, if you can make a, again, a punk ballad in some way, which is sort of what this is. And, and but yeah, Stiv's vocal is amazing. I would, it's the one song on the record I really would have loved it then in the studio to watch them play because I think mean, Cheetah probably was extremely drunk, extremely pissed, and extremely crying at the same time, you know? <laughs> so it would have been a really neat, a really, really neat thing to see, unless they were all hating each other so much that it was all done piecemeal and somebody came in at three in the morning to do their bass part or something, I don't know. Yeah. But, um, but I think it's really, really imp- important for about as important as a song can be on that album. Um, but, um, so I'm glad it's there. Um, but, you know, anyway. Yeah, right. it has a real drop the mic and everybody just I I don't know if they knew that this was the last song that I mean they did a live album I think to complete their contract, yeah they did yeah right so this is yeah this is the last on a on a studio record and I don't know if they knew that but this is this is just you know what throw the mic on the ground kick over everything and just and everybody just walks out and walks away. <laughs> yeah, I probably I probably could have done this before we talked, but I've read Cheetah's bio, but it's been a while. Um, Cheetah Chrome's biography is um, really good and fun. I believe he did talk about this. From what I remember, they did kind of, I mean, it was pretty obvious they weren't going to be a band anymore. It's kind of ironic because like the Dolls kind of, like the last Dolls tour, if I remember correctly, was was in Florida. And that's where they kind of got the understanding, unspoken or not, that they probably weren't going to be a band anymore. And I think, uh, you know, Johnny quit or whatever the fuck. But, um, so fuck you, Florida. But anyway, um, <laughs> but, uh, but I say but, that uh, a lot in my head, actually, Eric. <laughs> well, it's catchy. Fuck you, Florida. You know, it's catchy. It's six in your head. But, um, but, uh, you know, I think that they probably, whether they knew it while they were playing it, who knows? But I think there was a pretty, I think they must've said, yeah, let's put this last, you know, as a kind of a tribute and a kind of a coda or whatever the fuck that word is, but you know, as a kind of a thing, you know? Yep. All right. Let's get some scores on this. So Wayne. 10, this was my favorite song. Yeah. I called it. Oh, uh, I, I knew that I was put... going to be yours. I... Uh, ben, you did 10 too. No, or, I, or... no I, I called it. I, 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 oh. as, as as something that uh, amuses me, I always put Wayne's top score and his lowest score in my spreadsheet before I actually get his uh, <laughs> his scores, just to see if I'm right. And I was totally right on this. So I was wrong on the, yeah, I had... the Rolling Stone thing. I thought that you would like it, but uh, I was wrong. Yep. For all the uh, praising I just did, I had it at number seven. But that's only because 
as an album as a whole, as the Dead Boys' second album, you know, Third Generation Nation, I won't look back, and I don't want to be no Catholic boy, just kind of pop into my head first, even though I just praised Ain't It Fun effusively. Um, but just as, and also because I think putting it at the very end of the record does kind of give it an afterthought, weird feeling in a way, mainly because Calling on You and Dead and Alive are just like, okay. So, um, but I put it number seven, I could put it as the best song on the record. Um, but it's not, if you're talking about the Dead Boys and what we think of the Dead Boys as a sort of a fast punk, song, punk band, those three songs come into my mind first and they do sort of lead off the album. Um, so that's the only reason Aiden and fun is in the number 10 for me would be, you know, those kind of oblique reasons. Got it. And I give it an eight. Nice. All right. So, um, did we cover it? Did we miss anything? I think we did. No, I think that's it. That was the era when bands only had like 10 songs. Yeah, that was a work the other day. I pulled out George Michael's Faith. I'm like, there's eight songs on this record. Eight. Eight songs. The guy probably made like $30 million or something. You know, eight songs. Anyway. Yeah. So any guesses on what our top song was? I think Catholic. I think it was Catholic probably boy. Catholic Boy, right? Yeah. Probably yeah. that or Third Generation. Yeah, Catholic Boy got an average score of 8.66, but it was really close. We've got a tie for second. Ain't It Fun and Third Generation Nation? Uh, Ain't It Fun and I Won't Look Back. And oh, I Won't Look Back, of course. That uh, was 8.33 and just missing out on num- being tied for second with an average score of 8 was Third Generation Nation. Uh, our fifth fifth score... And this is all Wayne's doing because um, he liked the song a little more than Eric, you and I, I did. So uh, only a little more, but yes, flamethrower love that rounds out our top five. Jumps into the top five. Jumps into the top five. <laughs> we good with that top five? Sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think that's again, this is five. one of those records too where people tend to like certain bands are so good and and they're so sort of canonized at a certain point. If you kind of forget and go, oh, yeah, that second Dead Boys record. If this was a bunch of like 20 year olds right now that just put that record out and it was reviewed on Pitchfork last week, you know, it would be awesome. I would just be like, oh my God, this band is amazing. You know what I mean? Like, so, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's like latter day Rolling Stones complaints, you know, like, ah, right. you know, emotional rescue is not so good. It's like, well, no, compared to, compared to, you know, Exile Main Street, but it's still pretty fun, you know? So, you know. Yeah. Anyway, I, I want to reiterate that I think this is a really great record. And so, I mean, it, it, uh, it means a lot to me as a fun record, as a, you know, tortured follow-up or whatever they want to say, but considering they got it done and out, there's really great songwriting and it means a lot as a Cleveland guy. Cause I think there's stuff on there that you, you sort of get is coming from there. And, you know, so, and like going way back to why you asked why I picked it is just like, I think, yeah, it just leaves, it has a lot of weird holes and things about it that are kind of interesting to pontificate about and wonder about compared to just like a perfect debut album. You know? Yeah. Well, Eric, thank you very much for spending the last couple of hours with us talking about this. And, <laughs> yeah. and we're, we're appreciative of our guests who introduce us to things that maybe we would have overlooked. Cause I, like I said, I've, I have listened to the first dead boys record a number of times. Um, it's really kind of in the punk canon, and, uh, but I've really overlooked this particular one. So there, there, there was some good stuff on here. Yeah. Oh yeah. 
So uh, last question for you. So who do you know that I don't know who would want to join us on this podcast to revisit one of their favorite records? So who do you know? Well, God, there's, there are a lot. Well, I would say Matt Reaver or Jim Weber or Sam Brown of the new bomb Turks, but you know, you don't need another new bomb Turk guy, I guess. Um, geez, there's so many. Um, Oh my God. See, this is one of those questions of blank, like what's your favorite movie? And then you right, go, oh, right. um, I would, um, I mean, there's Tim Warren who runs Crypt records. Okay. He's extremely funny and really funny to talk to. He probably would not do this. Um, <laughs> Mike, uh, uh, Mike Edison, who is a writer, he has a brand new book out about, well, it's just about out about Charlie Watts. Um, he was in this band, the pleasure fuckers, but he's been in a bunch of bands over the years. Um, he's a good editor. He edited my book, but, um, not just saying it because of that, but he's, he's had, he had a podcast himself for a while. He's really funny and talkative, probably even more than me. Um, so Mike Edison is really funny and, and okay. would be worth having on or, um, uh, mighty Joe Vincent. He's a drummer of the devil dogs in New York punk band, great punk band from the late eighties, early nineties. Um, I think he knows a shit ton about music and he's really, really funny. Uh, he's a bartender in New York. He's a super funny guy. Devil dogs have great touring stories and stuff. Um, and there was, let's see, there was one more that was just popping in my head and then he ran away cause he probably wouldn't want to do it. Um, or, oh, um, maybe uh, Mick Collins of the Gories and the Dirt Bombs. He is very knowledgeable. And uh, finally, let me just throw one more at you since I can't fucking shut up. Um, <laughs> oh, God, who was I just thinking of the other day that was really fun to talk about um, music with? Um, I'll have to get back to you. Okay. I know what I'll do. I'll, I will, I will email it to you and then you will say at the end when you edit this big monstrosity together. Sounds great. Sounds great. Oh, we I just out. remembered it. Oh, I just remembered it. Nikki Corvette, power pop girl, Nikki Corvette. She's great. She has great stories that had that one album, Nikki and the Corvettes. It's great, but she still performs. She still plays. She just put a single out. She lives in Detroit. She lived in LA during the early eighties. She used to hang out at the Stooges and the MC five in Detroit when she was like a teenager and she has really great taste in music, and she'd be a fun one to ask, too. Okay. Excellent. So as a reminder, you can find all of our happenings on our Facebook page for the Records Revisited Podcast. We're on Instagram using the hashtag Records Revisited Podcast. You'll find us on Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Stitcher, iHeartMedia, and, of course, you can find all of our past episodes if you just go to recordsrevisitedpodcast.com. We're also on the old Twitter at Podcast Records. And, of course, on all those platforms, please go subscribe, rate us, review us, um, say nice things about us. All right. So thanks for listening. Please go support the arts. Go to a live show. Buy a T-shirt of the band. Buy a record. Visit a record store. And not just on Record Store Day. We are Records Revisited. And we are out. Out. (laughs) I did it too early, didn't I? No, yeah. no, that's great. It's, yeah, it's never together. Nobody, there's no way we can see. So somebody has to just go first, and then everybody follows. <laughs> we have to be like actors. Do it on the third beat. You know. <laughs> that's it. That's it. <laughs>